Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the bunker. I know it's been quite, quite a long time since, uh, since you have been given a new full episode of the bunker, and so, um, you know, I addressed this in my update that I posted recently, I believe it was the 5th of March, and, uh, so I, it's time to not only bring an episode, but bring a whopper of an episode. This is a two-hour special edition of The Bunker, and we're going to be addressing a case that I have covered in the past, which I referred to, you'll find it in the past episodes, I referred to it as the Peter Corey abduction case. You may be familiar with The Hair of the Alien Book by Bill Chalker, who covered this case and wrote the book about it tonight we have a whopper of an episode because as fate would have it peter cory himself while driving back to sydney heard uh heard the episode of the bunker and i'll i'll let him in his own words explain how that unfolded and and uh and and what that experience was for him uh it's 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 a pretty powerful pretty powerful experience for both of us actually and um and we'll be getting into it so so i'm going to do a brief live commercial and then i'm going to just jump right into it and you're going to get a treat which is a a commercial free interview with peter Corey himself um before that i uh, just want to say really quickly that if you're thinking of starting a podcast you know, I've said in the past, you know, try Anchor.fm, which is the app I've been using. But uh, since those days, Anchor has been purchased by Spotify. And so now Anchor FM essentially is Spotify for podcasters. So if you just Google that, you'll find the website, I'm sure. On any search engine, you'll find it. It essentially gives you all of the the past amenities that you would find on anchor.fm but now you actually have access to video podcasting that you can post directly to spotify which is a great little bonus it's just a an all, nice all-in-one one-and-done shop where you can create splice and put together an entire podcast and and distribute it to not only spotify but to many many other platforms with just a few clicks of the button super easy user-friendly i think you'll love it so if you're thinking of starting a podcast, I would definitely suggest going with Spotify for podcasters. So without further ado, I will bring you my interview with Peter Corey. But once again, I want to thank you so much for um, telling my story in a, I don't know, respectful and detailed way and it really really got to me actually um it's the first time i've ever heard anyone tell my story and tell it um so like you did a lot of research and um you know even even bill chalker didn't get it 100 percent in his book but um that's why i'm writing the book now and hopefully i'll get it published and get the record set straight but yeah once again thanks for doing a really good job on it it's not a problem. It's not a problem. And uh, it's it's very humbling. And I'm honored to to get the opportunity to tell these stories. And some of the stories that, you know, at least over here in the States, it might not be as well known 
Um, and you know, it was, it, it, I was touched when you said you were touched by how I treated the, the story. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm basically a, uh, I'm a paranormal investigator. I've been investigating, you know, haunted locations and helping out families with stuff going on in their homes for about 10 years now. And, uh, well, I think we need you, we need you in both our homes, my home and Mary's home. Really? Um, we've been, yeah, we've been having a bit of activity. I've been having activity for a long time and she's had some stuff at her house too. And it's a bit, you know, it's a bit much for us sometimes, but yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that because, uh, and that's one of the things that actually touched me about your story is that I, I, I got the opportunity to, to, to hear about your case, not from a book or from another podcast or from, you know, a third person, but I had, I got the opportunity. I happened upon your interview uh um online with erica and, yeah with uh when erica luke's uh interviewed you yeah. and and so i got to hear your story from from you and and i um you know i almost yeah. treated i almost treated that episode like i was going over my audio evidence like i i was like playing the interview and then i would like keep stopping it and rewinding it and and going back and like you know getting your reactions and stuff and what struck me was not only the fact that you were obviously emotionally affected by these events that took place, which is, which jumps out to me uh, because that's, you know, my girlfriend and I, that's what we do. We help people with, with paranormal activity in their home and things that are going on in their life. They can't understand that. It, and it makes them fearful. Yeah. Um, but also that the, the, you were describing what would, what some would call paranormal activity along with this extraterrestrial activity in possible abduction activity and and how you know the reason that jumped out at me is because my, two of my older sisters were chased by what they described as a ufo um you know the classic story the radio cuts out you know the and you know they all of a sudden are right. overcome with fear and they start run, racing on the street things following them my parents saw it i was just a child just a baby at the time um but in, you know, in addition to that activity, our house was struck by lightning, and we also had crazy paranormal activity going on. So, so it's interesting, you know, and it's something I'm hearing more and more as I sort of delve into, broaden my horizons from strictly paranormal into the broader spectrum of what would be considered paranormal, including alien activity and, and so forth. And I'm just seeing more and more correlations. And so that was a part of your story that really jumped out to me. And... Uh, really compelled me and I'm so glad you reached out and I'm so humbled. And so I was so touched because you were so touched because that, you know, you, the the first UFO case I ever investigated was the, the, uh, what they call the Stonehenge incidents would happen just, um, maybe just an hour from where I lived. And the thing about that case too, that struck me was the emotional impact on Georgia Barsky, the main witness, but others witnessed things too. But it was the fact that he was so emotionally affected by it is what really struck me. And so, I mean, I, I say we just jump right into it. And, you know, you had activity going on starting when, uh, as far as what you remember, is, you know, started as a child. And this kept going, you know, throughout your entire life on and off, right? So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. What's the, what's the first thing that happened to you? Look, um, I was brought up in Lebanon and my first seven years, seven and a half years were lived in Lebanon. And um, um, 
we're Lebanese Maronite Christian and my family never, ever discussed the UFO topic. It wasn't something that we discussed at home or talked about at all. Um, I never heard the term in my life. I mean, I was only seven years old, so, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't something that people talked to, about in front of me. But so I wasn't like, you know, it wasn't something that I saw on television or someone influenced me by talking about it. But um, my first, first recollection um, was, yeah, when I was about seven years old and we were, um, it was myself and two of my cousins, or three of my cousins, two females and a male, and a couple of the neighbourhood kids and friends. And um, we were probably between the ages, I'd say, of about maybe six to about 12. And um, we were playing outside. We are just playing in the street. It was school holidays. And in Lebanon, you get three months of school holidays straight um, in summer. So we're playing around. And um, someone just called out, let's go play on the roof. Um, and he named the family, which were two of the kids, a brother and a sister that were playing with us. And um, as you said that, everybody took off running towards their house, which is directly across the road from our house, where my parents live now. Well, they've got, my parents have a house across the road from this house. And um, we don't, we don't, we just, it's a three-story house. We don't live there. Only when my, someone goes overseas on holidays, we stay there. But um, anyway, we ran up to their house and went up the stairs, ran up the stairs and, as we reached the top um, the, on the roof, the landing, and we had to walk out onto the roof, um, there was a solid metal steel door um, and it was in a built into a frame. So it had its own frame, which was uh, a few inches off the ground. And you had to step over the frame as you walked in. And I recall every other time that we went up onto that roof, anytime you walked through, if, if, you, if you walked a meter in front of me, and you push the door open, by the time I walked through, which would be another two steps behind you, that door would come flying back at you because of its own weight. It'd just come back and close. So you'd always have to have your heart, hands out in front of you so you could push it away from you. And um, I saw like three, four kids run through and this door stayed open. So I was expecting it to come back and hit one of them. And when it didn't, as I stepped through the door, I had my hands fully stretched out in front of me with my palms up, thinking that if it comes back, springs back, I can it, it'll hit my hands before it hits my face. So that's what I was anticipating as I went onto the roof. And as I stepped over onto the roof, um, my all my friends and cousins had taken, you know, three, four, five steps, and they were just standing there. And I didn't know at the time that they were frozen in time like mannequins, like shop front mannequins. But as I stepped out, I noticed they weren't moving and um, I started to walk between them and they looked like literally statues that they had, they had no expression on their faces. Um, there was no movement whatsoever. I couldn't even see them breathing. And that glitter in your eye, you know, that glow in your eye, um, it's might be like a reflection of something, but I couldn't see that. It was just blank. Like they weren't even there. And um, the only thing I can relate it to is years later, I, Back in over in Australia, I lost a friend of mine. He committed suicide. And when we went to the viewing, I looked at him and his eye, for some reason, his eyes were a bit open. And we all commented that you just could not see like that glitter, that soul, whatever it was in the, in the eyes. And that reminded me of that. And um, so I'm, I'm a bit, you know, concerned. Like, why aren't they moving? Is it a game? Am I in? I was the last one on the, on the roof. So I thought, oh, maybe it's a game. So I started to tickle them. 
um, around the waist and, you know, try and get a, get a reaction out of them. And they weren't even moving. And then there was another kid with us. He was probably 12 years old. So he was a couple of years, three, three and a half years older than us, I believe at the time. And I reached up, I looked at him and I reached up under his chin so I can tickle his throat and get him to react. And as I looked up, I saw an egg-shaped object, which was egg-shaped, like nothing can describe it better than egg-shaped with the pointy uh, end uh, up high and the rounded end to the bottom. And it was leaning on a 45-degree angle and it was only about 20 metres above us. And as I looked up, I noticed there were two figures in there. Now, I could see it was a white, like a silvery, whitish um, object. And then on the front, it had a windscreen, which was oval-shaped. And it was um, as dark as your TV screen when it switched off. It was really dark. But I could still see two silhouettes inside sitting in this, sitting like in like a helicopter pilot would, but not sitting in, in such a way they were more leaning forward because the thing was on a 45 degree angle. So it looked like they were leaning forward, but they kept looking at each other. And I knew they were talking about us because they'd look at each other and then they'd look back towards us, well, towards me. The others didn't know what was going on. And um, I saw them do that a number of times. And then it dropped about five meters. It got lower, closer to us. And I was like, oh, you know, I didn't see a propeller. We'd seen many, many helicopters. We we live in Le we lived in Lebanon at the time, and we used to always get Israeli helicopters flying over and dropping propaganda material, like coloured paper with writing. We we didn't really care what was written on there. We just run around and collect the coloured paper, make paper airplanes out of them, basically. And um, as kids, whoever collected more colours was the winner, basically. And we just it was something we were accustomed to. We'd see them fly right above us, meters of you know. 50 meters above us and they'd be sitting outside uh, with their feet dangling down onto the landing pads and that so we were very accustomed to what a helicopter should look like or the sound of a helicopter and so on this thing was completely silent egg-shaped no propeller no landing gear didn't even see doors open doors or anything it was just egg-shaped and hovering above us and then I noticed it dropped about another five metres. So it was only about 10, 15 metres above us at that stage. So it was really close. I couldn't see any markings on it. It was completely um, clear, uh, as in no markings at all. But I could definitely see two very thin, very tall um, silhouette, shadowy-looking figures. I couldn't see any features such as eyes, nose, mouth. But I could see the silhouette. And um, as I'm looking up at this thing, the next thing I remember, we're all down on the bottom uh, uh, ground floor and we're sitting, some of us are sitting on the steps and some are standing and we were actually talking to each other and we were looking at each other thinking, how did we get here? Like everyone's last memory was on the, we were on the roof, we're playing up on the roof and all of a sudden we're downstairs and no one knows how we got there. So we were questioning each other about that. You know, how did we get here? You know, we were just on the roof. Um, I obviously asked, did you see that object or did you, why did you guys stop moving? You were frozen. No one, it was like, they were dumbfounded. They didn't, they didn't know what I was talking about. So they didn't even react to me. It was like, what are you talking about? Sort of expressions more than words. And um, as we're talking and asking each other questions, we hear our parents calling out to us. And one of the, one of the kids stuck their heads out the door and, you know, we're down the side of the house now. And he looks down the street and calls out, goes, oh, we're here, we're here. So three of the, our parents come up 
and they're questioning us, like, where have you been? And we're like, what do you mean? We're up on the roof. And they're like, no, where have you been? And we're like, every time we said we're up playing on the roof, we got in trouble and we'd get a little smack on the butt, you know, and they'd question like, where have you been? You're lying to us. And we're like, no. And every time we told them we were on the roof, we got a smack on the butt. And then they actually said to us, we've been looking for you for over two and a half, three hours nearly, calling out to you, calling out your names. If you were on the roof, you would have heard us. Um, why didn't you respond? And we said, we didn't hear you. We didn't hear you calling. So from the time we went up on the roof to the time we were back down at the bottom landing on the stairs, um, apparently some hours, two or three hours went by. I've got no recollection of things happening um, or being taken or anything like that, but there was some missing time in hours. And um, anyway, our parents told us to go home. We were grounded for a couple of days. We weren't allowed to play to get together as a group. Um, and uh, the, I'm, I'm just going to jump back a little bit here. Um, we got this. I got this information from my mum in 2004 when Bill Chalker was researching the book um, "Hair of the Alien," and uh, he was talking to my family and speaking to family members who had seen things around me. And one of my brother had the experience. When I had the 88, 1988 experience, my brother was with me. And um, I remember my mum walking into the room and she was asking, what are you guys talking about? You know, And my brother said, oh, they're interviewing us about Peter's uh, experience in 1988. And out of the blue, like I've never heard my mum say that. And I wish we record. It's, it's documented in writing. Bill made notes. But we didn't um, um, record it, video record it, or even audio record it. But she said, oh, yeah, I remember when we were kids, our parents, we used to see lights in the sky all the time and our parents would tell us they're um, Israeli spy planes. And, I mean, everything in Lebanon gets thrown back at as Israeli spy something or other. But um, she said there was one day I'll never forget and she said Peter was 22 days old. So this is 1964. It'd be around May 18th maybe, something like that. Um she said Peter was 22 days old and I remember it was three o'clock in the morning. I was breastfeeding him. And um, as I was breastfeeding him, I saw what she said was an alien at the window or a, a being at the window looking at her. And um, we used to, in Lebanon, you'd have the glass, obviously the glass, then you had wooden shutters, which are louvered, um, like you'd have in some wardrobes that have louvered um, wood on there, the doors. Um, you open the outside shutters and you've got your glass windows. And um, so my mum's sitting there at three o'clock on her bed, uh, breastfeeding me. And she said she saw an alien with big black eyes, um, well, big eyes, but actually had blue in the eyes more so, and uh, white hair. And it was combed to the side, like over, really to the side and combed over. And it was just up to his neck, uh, shoulders, um, really white, milky skin. Uh, wearing a turtleneck, a black uh, turtleneck that went just under his uh, chin or, you know, down his neck. And um, she said that she didn't feel like he was perving at her. Um, and she actually used those terms. She said, he wasn't looking at me. He was looking at my son. He was watching my son. And she made the point and said, what woman in 1964 in Lebanon in the Middle East sees a white haired, milky white skinned person looking through the window at three o'clock in the morning doesn't freak out. And she said, but for some reason, I was yeah. totally calm. And I went to put my son down and I went to sleep. 
and didn't even think about it. She goes, like, I didn't even think about closing the windows or the curtains or anything. Just totally calm and went to sleep. And in the morning, she got up. My um, my uncle was, uh, uh, he was head of security. Him and the two guys were around the whole security for the town. So they were highly respected by business people and that. Um, she went and spoke to him and to see. We, we live on the coast and we live, we've got two ports there. We've got a white cement factory and a black cement factory or grey cement. And there's two ports there where ships pull up, load up cement and leave. And my mum was just asking my uncle to check and see if any uh, foreign ships like, you know, American, Swiss, whatever, any Western um, blonde, blue-eyed people with white hair were there. And there was no ships in the ports at all that week. Um, so, yeah, she, she couldn't. But I, I could never understand why she never, ever mentioned it until that day. But just as well she did anyway, like it's on record now. But, um, yeah, now, after my experience um, in um, – it's early 70s. In 73, we migrated out to Australia. My dad was here about six years before us in Australia working, and we followed him out in 1973. And um, it seems that even if you leave a country and you go halfway around the world, these beings can find you and uh, they can track you and um, locate you so easily. Um, you know, I've I don't know. I didn't understand the technology at the time, but I'm starting to now because we have implants where we can implant our pets. Um, they want to implant every newborn child now with an implant, so we know it can be done. And um, so anyway, we come around to 1988. Um, I, I lived on my own for about five years prior to 98, and I had just moved back home with my parents in, their, in my family home. And um, I um, I was probably back home for about nine months and um, I was sitting down with my dad watching TV, which I was actually enjoying because I didn't spend much time with my dad. Um, I had been away for five years and I just moved back home and I'm sitting there with my dad watching a movie. It was about 11.15. The movie started about 11 o'clock at night and it was probably going to be the late movie. So at that stage back then, the channels used to shut down. Uh, the station would close and you'd just get a blur on the on the screen or there'd be some, you know, test pattern and it, it'd tell you the station's closed. So it was about quarter past 11. We're watching this movie, my dad and I, and um, my brother was asleep in my bedroom and out of the blue, he just walked out and he said to me, can you go and sleep? Uh, can you go and watch TV in your bedroom? I want to sleep out here. Now, I was in the TV room watching TV and he was in my bedroom. So he's walked out and I didn't argue with it. I thought, you know what, I don't mind my privacy. I got up, walked into my room, closed the door. I went and sat down on the side of my bed. And as I'm telling it to you now, is that it, as it happened, I'm not changing one thing. So it happened really quickly. Um, I sit on the bed. I had a little color Toshiba TV uh, on the, next to the bed. And as I sat down, I turned the TV on. And as I went to lie on the bed, I threw my legs over. So my legs are crossed at the, at the ankles, crossed my legs over. And I put my hands behind my head, both my hands behind my head so I could rest on the pillow. And before my feet, like my heels, touched the mattress or my head touched the pillow, as I laid back, um, I felt something grab me around my ankles. And to me at the time, it felt like it was maybe – the part of the hand between the index finger and the thumb, 
and that webbing area where I felt, but then it could have been a device because as soon as I felt something grab me, I just felt instant pins and needles up through my legs. And it was really quick up through my legs, all the way up through my thighs, up through my torso, up to my face. And when I, my face started tingling and the, my head started tingling, like my scalp and my hair. And the way I described it back then was it felt like I had thousands of ants crawling through my scalp. But doing the research, you know, now it feels to me more like the description should have been more like static electricity, but I didn't know that then. So um, my description was, yeah, it felt like ants crawling through my scalp, uh, my hair and that. And um, I became paralyzed. And at that time, I was—I did martial arts. I did like karate, taekwondo, kickboxing. And I was pretty fit. I played rugby league, which is uh, a heavy contact sport. No padding or anything. And um, so, you know, I, I, I knew how to handle myself. And the one weakness I had, which I think is my kryptonite, is claustrophobia. I don't like to be restrained. I don't like to be in a lift if it stops and I can't get out. Um, so being restrained doesn't sit well with me. So as I became paralyzed, I couldn't move, but fortunately for me, my eyes were open. I could, I could think like I could, I could say what I, I was thinking about calling out to my dad and my brother, but no voice. I had no voice. My voice box was shut down. So I could think my brain was functioning. My eyes were open. I could see what was going on, but I could not move any part of my body other than that. And as I'm laying there, and I'm paralyzed. I look at the foot of the bed. I like I, my eyes are directed straight at whatever grabbed me, and I see this little creature, and he's about three, four foot in height, um, hooded, wearing a robe with a hood, a big hood over its head, and the face looked like a gorilla's face to me. It was um, it was uh, dark in color, maybe darkish blue or black but more a bluey tinge to it and um, deep wide forehead, deep set wrinkles in the forehead, wide, uh, little round eyes, deep set eyes. Uh, the nose was wide. It was like a gorilla's nose. It was wide, uh, big, like a wide nose and the mouth that had big lips, um, little chin. Uh, I didn't see the ears. Um I didn't see any hair, if it had hair on there or not. But as I'm looking, I notice with the corner of my eye on my right side, there were two other uh, beings exactly like the first. And when I say exactly like the first, I mean a copy. It looked like they were clones of each other. But, um, I mean, they could have had subtle differences that I couldn't pick on. But anyway, to me, they looked this, exactly the same. And as, as I've looked... I started to panic because I thought, oh, my God, this is demonic. This is evil. This is the devil. That's where I was thinking. The, the alien did thought did not enter my head. I was not thinking alien at that stage at all. I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is evil. This is the devil. Um, I'm not going to be able. And I'm thinking I'm paralyzed. I'm panicking, thinking I'll never walk again. So I start to call out. I'm trying to call out to my dad and to my brother who were in the next room, basically, and I could say their names. Like I could, my brother's name is Sam. And I could say Sam, but they wouldn't come out. I could think it, but I couldn't get that sound out. And I was trying to call out the dad, and I couldn't wait to get the sound out as well. So it was really frustrating. 
And then as I'm struggling with that and I'm really freaking out and I'm sweating and, you know, I'm stressed out and I'm thinking, fuck, this is, sorry, <laughs> I'm thinking this is the devil and this is evil and I'm not going to walk for the rest of my life. My parents are walking in the morning. I'll be in a wheelchair from now on. And all of a sudden, after, you know, dealing with all this panic and all this stress, with the corner of my eye again on the left side of the bed, which was a wardrobe against the wall, the, they were standing there and then my bed. So they were between my bed and the wardrobe, right next to me, one at my shoulder, one at my waist. I noticed two taller beings. I'm talking seven foot tall, um, easily seven foot tall. And um, they were very slim, uh, goldish in color. I don't know if it was a jumpsuit type thing they were wearing, but they were goldish in color, uh, orangey, goldy color big massive black eyes i didn't see any hair on them um big massive black eyes uh two little slits for a nose i uh, didn't see a ridge or a big nose or anything just two little holes where a nose the nostrils would be and then a little line as if you drew it with a pencil i didn't see lips i didn't see teeth i didn't see tongue i just saw this tiny little line as if you drew a mouth with a pencil and um a pointier chin uh, oval-shaped face, um, and one, as I said, one was closer to my shoulder, so right near my head, and then the other one was at my waist. And I noticed that one was a male that was closer to my head, and the other one was female. And the male that was closer to me um, had a surgical mask, and we're all accustomed to uh, surgical masks now. We know what they, what how big they are, and how, you know what. Our masks are probably big as four of our fingers, like the width of your hand. The ones that they these beings were wearing were probably the, the width. Put two fingers, your index and middle finger together, they're probably that wide, maybe even a bit narrower. And the male that was standing next to me had it sitting under his chin, so he didn't have his mouth covered or his nose covered with it. The female that was standing at my waist, she had the mask over her mouth. I'm not too sure if it was covering her nose as well, but definitely over her mouth. And I knew she was female because she had breasts where the other one was just flat chested. And um, anyway, as I'm freaking out and panicking, I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is evil. This is demonic. This is the devil. I, I noticed these beings to my left. And as soon as I looked into his eye, into the male's eyes, um, I'm talking big, massive eyes, like big as a horse's or a cow's eyes, like big black eyes. And honestly, within seconds, I felt like it, as if I was almost hypnotized by those eyes or like I fell into this void of darkness and just fell into that space. And But I got this feeling that this being knew more about me than I knew about myself. Like this being was with me from for a long time and knew me and that's why he wasn't concerned about wearing a mask around me i think not to give me anything or catch anything himself um but as i'm freaking out and i'm you know stressing out and i'm sweating i notice them and then all of a sudden i hear a voice in my head it wasn't a voice i shouldn't use the term voice it was a feeling it was a knowing i i i felt him say to me communicate with me i didn't hear like sound coming out of his mouth but I picked up on it in my mind and it was telepathic communication. And it was basically things like calm down, relax. We're not going to harm you. It'll be like the last time, calm down, relax. We're not going to harm you. It'll be like the last time. And I'm lying there and I'm thinking to myself, what fucking last time? Like, what do you mean? Like the last time 
I don't have a memory of anything like this. And um, I mean, it wow. Wow. could have could have been could have been referring to when I was a child on the roof of that building. Could have been referring to another experience. I'm not sure. But um, as soon as I've I've looked in his eyes and had heard that communication, which was seconds apart, I became totally calm. So within seconds, I went from being stressed, sweating, you know, freaking out to completely, completely calm and relaxed. And I remember when Professor John Mack came out to Australia in 96 and he actually, John became like a father figure to me. We got on really well. He, when he was in Australia, he'd stay with us and we'd take him everywhere. We'd, we'd track together. Um, we were like family with my wife, my ex-partner and, and Dominique uh, got along really well, John's partner at the time. Um, he hypnotized me and he hypnotized me and regressed me regarding this in incident. And he noted afterwards, my my reaction to seeing the creatures and thinking they were evil and demonic or whatever and how stressful it was to me and then seeing the other ones. I remember John commenting on even through the regression, how I was panicking and you know I had tears running down my eyes. And he goes, and all of a sudden in the split second, the sweat went, the you were calm. Um, you won't freak out. He goes, you can't do that. He goes, your body can't fake that. Nobody can do that. So it really hit home with John as well that, you know, if it, the way it affected me and how um, just how extreme the, the difference was from feeling really, really threatened and, you know, demonic things and to all of a sudden, a sec couple of seconds later, I'm feeling so calm and, you know, like I've never been in more peace in my life. But anyway... As the as the, I hear him saying to me, "Calm down, we're not going to harm you. You relax and be like the last time." I see he's got in his hand. Um, he was carrying it like in between three fingers almost. Um, it looked like a syringe to me, but then at the end of the syringe, it had like a um, uh, uh, optic fiber tube. It was like a flexible looking tube, and then right at the tip of it, it had a little light. I could see a tiny little light. And he pointed at, he's saying to me, calm down. We're not going to harm you. Relax. It'll be like the last time. And then all of a sudden he puts this needle to my head on the left side of my head, just above my ear, but a little bit higher on the side, say, and um, inserted it. I felt pressure and I felt something go into my scalp, but I didn't feel pain. And then I black out, instantly blacked out. So I'm lying in bed and all of a sudden I, I wake up, I'm fully awake and I just sprung out of bed because I had been fighting this paralysis for so long, trying to move, trying to get something. Um, as soon as I got movement, I jumped out of bed. I actually, honestly, to me, it was like I sprung out of bed um, and I'm standing up at the foot of the bed now looking around me going, what the hell just happened? And then I opened my bedroom door, go into the lounge room and my my dad, my father, and my brother are still in the lounge room, but I noted the first person I could see was my brother sitting in the, on the chair, uh, on a single lounge chair, and he was knocked out. And my father was sitting, as I went into the room, he was to my left. So as I went through the door, my dad was on the left, and he was on the lounge as well, on a three-seater lounge, and he was knocked out, like sitting up, sitting, not lying down, sitting but he was knocked out. So I've tried to wake up my dad first and I must've tried for about two minutes, easily two minutes. And I couldn't get him to wake up. And I started to freak out thinking, Oh my God, my dad's had a heart attack. So I tried to wake up my brother 
turn around behind me and I'm shaking my brother, you know, Sam, Sam, get up. Something's wrong with dad. And I couldn't wake up my brother. So I don't know why he did this, but it, I was, I was panicking thinking my dad and my brother, something's happened to them. So I just slapped my brother three times across the face and he woke up. And the first thing he said, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, I feel like I've been switched off, but he said it in Arabic. He goes, I feel like I've been switched off. And I said to him, mate, I can't wake up dad. Something's wrong with dad. So we both got up. My brother jumped up, you know, trying to wake up dad, trying to wake up dad. And we couldn't. And my brother said, get a glass of water. So I went and got a glass of water. He got some water and put it on my dad's face. Couldn't wake him. So he slapped my dad twice across the face. And my dad woke up, but did not say a word. It just looked like he was so vacant, like he wasn't even there. He just woke up. I mean, you'd say, why are you putting water on me? Why are you hitting me? What happened? You know, oh, did I pass out? What happened? Didn't even say a word, just sat there. And then I said to my brother, how long has it been since I've been, since I went to my room? And he goes, oh, about 10 minutes. And I thought it was about 10, 15 minutes. And as we we looked at the TV, we saw that the screen was a blur. It was just nothing there, just blurry screen with a test pattern on there. And it must have been around three o'clock at that time. And um, I remember saying to my brother, like, when I when when you came in here and I went in the room, it was about 15 minutes into the movie. And he's like, yeah, I remember. I, I went and got a glass of water and I went into my room. I put the glass of water next to the bedside chest and I just sat there and I thought, if I get up in the morning and this glass of water is here, something happened. So I've got to remember that something ha- might have happened. So anyway, I'll go to bed thinking, oh, I'll wake up. It'll be all a dream. and You know, there'll be no glass of water there and everything will be okay. So I get up in the morning and i got to say, when I went back to bed, I'll have a dream usually and I'll toss and turn most of the night. I can't sleep trying to figure out why I was dreaming what I was dreaming. But this thing, I'm, this was the weirdest, one of the weirdest things I've ever happened to me. And I just went to bed and I slept like a baby basically. Anyway, I got up in the morning and um, I went and had a shower. And as I come out of the shower, I was drying my um, uh, legs, my lower, just my under, you know, my knees and that, just my legs. And on my shin, on my right leg, on the, on the shin area, on the inside of my leg, um, as I was drying with the towel, I felt a burning sensation. And it, it, to me, it felt, when I looked at it, it felt like a seat, like something's burnt me, like, someone put a cigarette there and burnt me for like, let it burn for, you know, a good 20, 30 seconds. Cause it was about five millimeters in diameter and about two to three millimeters deep. And it had three distinct marks in it, like three triangular dots or holes, you could say. And, um, wow. I knew straight away. I knew that that was related to what happened to me the night before. There was no way that was there any time before that. And it was red raw. It was as if you just put a cigarette and let it burn. It was red raw. So anyway, I get dressed. Six hours later, I went to pick up my fiance uh, from work. And uh, she gets in the car. As soon as she got in the car, she looked at me and she straight away, she said, what's happened? You've had a fight with someone or something has happened. I can tell. And I was like, look, I've experienced something last night. I've got to talk to someone. I may as well tell you. So I started to tell her the story I've just told you now. And as I got to the point where I said, oh, they put something in my head and I touched the, the spot and I scratched it a little bit with my nail, fingernail, 
And I, when I looked, I noticed there was dry blood on my fingernail, on, on my nail. And um, she had a look and she actually said to me, she goes, oh, my God, you've got like a donut um, shape uh, with a hole in it and there's dry blood around it. She was like, you've got to go to the doctor and get him to check it out, you know. And I said, oh, and also have a look at this thing. And as I lifted up my jean leg to show her, um, it's still a scar. It's still there. Uh, I've taken photos of it. It's uh, very distinct, but it was healed. It's an indentation, like I said, five millimeters in diameter by probably two to three deep. Um, it's still, it's a scar. It's still there. It's distinct. You can see it. You can feel it. It's very deep. You can put almost half the tip of your finger in there. It's that deeply indented. But um, as I showed it to her, six hours later, it wasn't red draw anymore. It was completely healed like it is now, like it's just a scar. And I couldn't understand that, how quickly it healed. But anyway, I dropped her off at home at her parents' place. And then I drove up to the doctor, who, which was about five minutes away from her, her parent, my fiance's parents. It was in a suburb called Elwood. And um, that doctor had been my doctor for 10 years. And she knew me very, very, very well. Um, I actually walked in there. And when I walked in to see her, talking to her privately, um, as I told her my story, what I've just told you, she started laughing and started laughing that people in the waiting room must have thought I was either the best comedian in the world or that the doctor was going crazy. She was just laughing hysterically. And I just sat there dumbfounded. And at the end, I said to her, doctor, if you think I'm crazy, don't fucking laugh at me. Send me to a psychologist. Send me to a psychiatrist. But don't fucking laugh at me. Like, I really got pissed off. And um, I never went back to see that doctor again. I lost complete faith in her. And she was a good doctor too, but just wasn't, you know, a lot of people at that time, a lot of professionals weren't open-minded to this stuff. So I can understand it. But it really annoyed me because she said to me, oh, you might have hit your head on a nail at work because I was in the building game at the time. And um, I said, doctor, I've stepped on a nail at work. I'll come to you. You give me a tetanus shot. We move on. I don't make up a story like this. So, yeah, needless to say, I lost all faith in her and I didn't go back and see her again. So from that point, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what direction to go. I didn't know where this fitted in. Now, one day, um, I think it might have been around 1990, something like that. I'm not too sure. could have been 89 maybe. But... Vivian and I driving um, past a, a club and it had a, a bus, uh, uh, like a bus shelter where people stop and, you know, get on the bus. And it had advertising at the back of that shelter and there was an advertisement. It was a black poster, really black, dark poster, and it had white writing in small writing and it said, they're coming. And we took, we loaded, we both noted it. We were standing, stopped at a set of lights and we were looking at it. And I said, I wonder what that's about. And she goes, oh, probably some movie or something. Now, two weeks later, in the same spot, there was a different poster, black with white writing, and it said, they're here. So they're coming, and then two weeks later, they're here. And I said, I wonder what that's like. It's changed now. I wonder what that's about. Two weeks after that, we're driving past at near her work, actually, in the city. And... I'm stopped at a set of lights. There's a couple of buses um, stopped next to us. The buses take off. And as they take off, she's looking over and she goes, oh, my God. And I said, what? She goes, have a look. And there's in this 
in this on this poster was a picture of an alien from uh, Whitley Strieber's uh, book Communion, the front cover of Communion, basically the goldish, gray, um, orangey-looking alien with the big eye, which is exactly what I saw. And she's like, she had her hand over her mouth, and she was like, "Oh my God, have a look!" I turned around, I looked at this thing, and it blew me away. I was like, "Fuck, that's what I saw. That's that's exactly what I saw." And look, if I had to get an artist, and they asked me, "Can you give us a description? Let's get something on." on paper, a sketch or something. I could not have got it as well as the people who did the Whitley Stryber movie, Communion, how well they got both the creatures, the tall ones with the big black eyes and the short gorilla-looking ones with the hoods. Incredible job on the accuracy of what they look like. So when I see that poster, I'm thinking, what is this? We look it up and she said to me, this is in the 90s, mind you, um, um, we realized it was about a, a book and the book was called communion. So I went and out and bought the book and I tried to even turn the cover over and I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it for some reason. It was too confronting. So Vivian grabbed it. She said, do you mind if I read it before you? And I said, go for it. She was a quick reader anyway. So she'd be reading. Um, she'd catch a train to work. And as soon as she'd get to work, she'd ring me and she'd be like, you've told your story to someone and they've written it as their own story. And I'm like, no, you're the only person I've told. I haven't told anyone about this. And she's like, Peter, someone has written your story. This is your story, your description of the beings, very similar to what's happened to you. So I couldn't wait to read the book. Anyway, when I started reading the book Communion, um, I'd, I'd read a page or two, and I'd struggle. I'd have anxiety. I couldn't do it. I'd just have to close the book. And it took me a while to get over that. But once I started reading, um, I saw a lot of things there that I could relate to. And I saw a lot of things that were just way, way out of what I experienced. Um, like I know in the communion, in the book, in the movie, Whitley's in this cabin in the woods and they appear in his house and he starts shooting at him with a shotgun and they're appearing and disappearing and playing games. I didn't have that. You know, for me, they were there. They were in control. They did what they did got me back and I have a memory of it luckily for me but I don't didn't have that interaction that is in the movie but their movies are probably exaggerated I've met with Strebo in person and um, I know that the movies are always exaggerated and so on but anyway I had something to reference my case and I had something that like a you know pigeonhole you can name it now and I could put it somewhere where I can psychologically try and deal with this thing you know under that banner and um, so I started searching I started ringing up psychiatrists and psychologists myself and asking them and every single time when I'd say to them I'd mention I had you know presence in my room or I think I had beings creatures whatever you want to call them in my room the next comment would be no sorry we don't deal with any of that and hang up on me wouldn't even refer you to someone else or you know, if someone's got mental health issues or someone's having a problem dealing with something, you know, as a, as a therapist, you don't hang up on them and just leave them in the lurch. You you direct them somewhere. You give them some some place where they can turn to. But I wasn't given that. But anyway, it was a big struggle. Um, oh eventually, I spoke to a psychologist in Queensland. And he actually said to me, he said, look, what you're telling me, I've heard other people talk about this. It sounds like it's UFO connected. He goes, there's a group in Sydney forming a, a UFO group. Um, 
and it's their first meeting in a couple of weeks. Maybe you should go and touch base with them. Well, I ended up going with two friend, female friends of mine and um, they were naming the group that night. We ended up naming, I and myself and my friends ended up winning the naming right to the group. We named it. So they gave me a couple of books on UFOs, which I gave to my female friends um, to keep. And um, anyway, that, that was my involvement. That was my introduction to my experience being you know, linked to UFOs or aliens. That's the first I heard of it. So I went and got involved in this group and I served with them on their committee for a while. I was a committee member for a couple of years. And um, what I noticed was they were more than happy to ex investigate, research, talk about, discuss, present anything to do with flights in the sky um, from the 50s, 40s, 30s, seven, wherever. They were happy to talk about it. But as soon as anybody said, oh, I think I had a presence in my room, or they, they reacted as, as did everyone else, um, didn't want to know. And I was in a meeting once with the committee and one of the committee members actually said, oh, you got to admit, those abductees or people who claim to have abduction experiences are a weird bunch of people. And I just sat there with my jaw on the ground. And I said to him, you realise you're talking about me? I go, those people you're talking about, I'm one of those people. And it really turned me off, his attitude. And I've seen the same person. Someone sent a sample of a T-shirt. They cut out a piece of T-shirt and it had an orange stain on it. And the guy alleged that, it was from an abduction experience where they smeared some substance on this guy and it, came, it was on his shirt. So he kept the shirt and cut it and sent us a sample. This guy grabbed that sample and threw it in the bin. So I actually grabbed it at the end of the meeting. I went to the bin and took it out and I still have that. And um, yeah, I lost all faith in the committee and in their thought process and in the way they were doing things. And anyway, any time abductions or alien abductions got brought up, they shut it down quickly. They didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to discuss it. Then Bud Hopkins, I believe it was might have been 97, something around 97, Bud Hopkins came out to Australia and he spoke about abduction, the abduction phenomena. And I did an interview, a one-on-one -on -one interview with Bud for about an hour. Um, and my main question to him was, can someone like me in my position who's had the experience can I be of use or helpful in a, in, in a support group environment? Like, can I help people? He goes, you would be one of the best people to help. He said, because you're dealing with your experience well, you're strong, and for you to want to help others, he goes, that's going above and beyond. So in 1993, I founded the, myself and a, and a colleague, uh, his name was Jamie. We uh, founded the UFO Experience Support Association, which was a support group just for people who've had experiences. We just wanted to give people somewhere where they can turn to and talk to someone. That's all. It wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't going to be as big as we thought, but then we had all these professionals come on board. We had psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, doctors, you name it, physicists, um, hypnotherapists, um, naturopaths, you name it. We had all these people just wanting to join our group. And it was so successful for about 15 years. We just did such a great job Public education was big on our agenda, so we'd hold public meetings. Um, we'd hold film nights. We did a really, really good education, um, um, educational-wise job. But um, after Bud Hopkins came out, the group, the, the committee and the group realised that, oh, this abduction phenomena is a lot more interesting than we thought, and there's a lot more evidence to it than we thought. Um, we, since Peter, they, they appointed me the... Um, 
representative for the support group. So I was looking after contacts when people called. So they just wanted to pull the carpet from under me, basically, and just take everything from me, all the information I gathered, all the evidence, all the people I spoke to. So I said, no, that's not going to happen. And I left the group. And that's when I started the UFA Experience Support Association. It's a support group. And um, that was one of the best decisions I made, actually. And um, we come around to 1992. And between 88 and 90. 92, I, that was my introduction to the UFA field. And then from, say, 90 to about 92, when I had my experience with the two females and the DNA sample, um, that's when I started to really understand what's going on and the connection with aliens and UFOs and abductions and so on. And um, so here we come now. It's 1992. And um, I, I got attacked about two months before. Um, I was attacked at work. Um, I was nearly killed. I, I got stabbed in the chest. I got uh, hit on the head with a shovel, sharp edge, mind you, of the steel part of the shovel, the oh blade. God. Um, I got hit on the head twice. And the third time I blocked it and fractured my thumb. I reckon that would have killed me if it hit me. But um, also I um, had my arm ripped open with a broken bottle. The guy broke the bottle and slashed my arm open with it. Um, so I, got, I was pretty badly injured. And I was recovering. It took me three years to recover. But in that, in the first few months, I was on medication, obviously. I was getting, you know, treated and getting CT scans and all these sort of scans and so on for my head and brain scans and so on. And um, anyway, 1992, I'm, uh, it was in the morning at 7, 7 o'clock in the morning. I drove. I, I wasn't feeling sick or anything. I was lying in bed. My ex got ready to go to work and she said, oh, can you give me a lift to the train station? So I got in my car and as we drove away from my house, the f I went a block away from my house and I started feeling sick. And the further I got from my house and the station is probably a five minute drive, four to five minute drive. So the, the further I got from my house and the closer I got to the station, the sicker I got and I, I was vomiting and I was, it was just this, Liquid, only liquid. I don't know where it was coming from, but it was just so much of this liquid coming out of me. And it was like a yellowy fluorescent looking liquid. I've never seen anything like that before or since. But um, anyway, I dropped her off at the station. As I'm driving back, I noticed the closer I got to home, the less I felt sick and the less frequent I had to stop and, and actually open the car door and vomit. And I was feeling better. And once I got like a block or two away from home, I didn't have to pull up a vomit at all. So I pulled up in the driveway, opened my door, front door, walked in, closed the door behind me, walked into my bedroom. I wasn't feeling the best because I'd been vomiting. So I lied down on my bed and covered myself with the quilt. And it was around July at the time. So it was cold. And um, as I'm, I just went in. So this is about 10 past, 10 past seven in the morning now. And I'm lying in bed. With the, with the quilt and the sheet, sheets going over me. And I felt like something jumped on the bed. And you know when you feel like someone sits on the bed next to you, you feel that indentation, that weight. Mm, yeah. um, I, I felt that near my feet, like almost near my knees. I felt like something jumped and sat on the bed. And we didn't have any pets at the time, dogs or cats. And But I thought, oh, maybe when I opened the door, some a dog or a cat snuck in. And they've just jumped on the bed. So it, it caught my attention. So I sat bolt upright. 
as I'm lying there, I just sat up to see what it was. And what greeted me was the shock of my life. Um, something you wouldn't expect to see in your bedroom, let, you know, at night, let alone at seven o'clock or we'll 10 past seven in the morning. But as I looked up to see what jumped on the bed and made the mattress, you know, the movement on the mattress, I sit up. And as I went to sit up, I saw my astral body. Let's call it my astral body. You could call it my soul, whatever you want. People want to label it. But I saw a clear, transparent image of me. And it was a full 3D image of me come out of my body in front of me. It was like I was looking at it. I was looking at it from the back of the head, say. And I was looking. And I knew it was me. But it was a glass, transparent-looking image. And then through that, on the other side, I could see a female, a blonde female straddling me and looking directly at me. And she was taller than me as she was straddling me. Obviously, she was taller anyway. But sitting on me made her look a bit taller as well. And um, I'm looking. And then as my body catches up with my soul, like as my soul set up, and then my body set up and, and caught up with it, and I become one again, I felt the hands, both her hands cup the back of my head. And she brought my head to her left breast, pushed, pushed with both hands, pushed my face into her left breast and basically buried my face into her breast. And um, I couldn't breathe. So I'm trying to push away from her and I pushed as hard as I could against her body. So I'm, I'm touching her body. I can feel her skin. I can feel her. I'm pushing against her and I used all my strength to push away and I got a breath, I could breathe, you know, I took a couple of breaths and bang, she did it again and forced my face into her breast the second time and I couldn't breathe. So I'm pushing away, pushing, eventually I've pushed away and I've just like, <gasps> you know, taken that breath. And then the third time she buried my face into her breast again and I tried my hardest to push away from her. She must have been so strong. She must have been a lot stronger than me. I could not push away from her as hard as I tried, could not pry myself away from her. So my face is buried in a breast. I can't breathe. The only thing I could do, and a lot of people have commented on this and have got it so wrong, so wrong. I did not bite her nipple off. I did not. But I say, uh, when I first described this, I said, I took a nip. Like my face is crushed into her breast. I can't open my mouth and, and bite. I just, with my teeth, I sort of pinched her skin more than, it wasn't a bite, it was more a pinch. And... I thought, yeah, I must have bitten some flesh or maybe a little bit of the nipple. I'm not sure. I'm not even sure if my mouth was near the nipple, to be honest with you. But I did feel something hit the back of my throat. And as soon as whatever that was, whether it was a bit of flesh, whether it was something they gave me, I don't know. It could have been a pill. But anyway, it hit the back of my throat and it was like I just drank acid. It was like someone poured acid down my throat. It was burning so bad. It was so uncomfortable. I just couldn't. I started coughing. Anyway, I was able to push away from her. As soon as I took that little nip, you know, pinched with my teeth, I was able to push away from her. And as I pushed away from her, I looked at her face and she looked like she was in shock. And I think that's why her eyes looked a lot bigger than human eyes. I think she was like in shock and her eyes were wide open. But they were at least... I'd say twice the size of a human's eye, beautiful big eyes with slanted eyes with her. Um, the, the, I've never seen the color blue. I don't think I could ever, 
I'll, I mean, we'll have to go through a lot of blues to get that exact color blue, but I want to get an artist to do a proper, proper sketch because I've had a lot of people send me images of what this female looks like, but it's close enough, but not 100%. So I'm going to sit down with someone and get it done really, you know, get a portrait done that resembles exactly what she looked like. But anyway, as I'm sitting there and I'm dealing with this and I've just swallowed something and there's a female sitting on top of me that's naked and I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck is going on here, you know? And I looked to, next to her and on the side of the bed, like sitting on the bed was another female, but she was Asian. Now, the, the female that was sitting on top of me, straddling me, she, she had the most perfect body you can imagine, perfection. Um, the breasts were perfect. Um, not even gravity was not at work where she lived because they were just jutting out. There was no gravity at work, it looked like. Um very flattish uh, stomach. I didn't see one thing I noted, and um, a lot of people missed this point. I didn't see a belly button on her. She just had a flat stomach. And when when it got lower, I didn't see any pubic hair or anything. It was just, you know, clear shave. I don't know. Maybe they don't have hair there, but she definitely had hair on her head, and it was long, wispy hair. It was almost transparent, see-through. It was like a thin, very thin fishing line. Um, and it was, it looked like it was being blown, like there was wind hit that was being blown. It reminded me a bit of the uh, Farrah Fawcett, um, Charlie's Angels with Farrah Fawcett Majors in the, in there with her hair blowing, that sort of haircut style, uh, but very wispy. And, you know, um, she had milky white skin, uh, color of the hair was whitish as well, uh, blondish white. Um, she had, Flawless skin. I didn't see a wrinkle in her face. Like her forehead had no wrinkles, near her eyes. Every, I didn't see any wrinkles at all. Big, big, beautiful eyes. Uh, a longish nose, but I'm not saying a big nose. It wasn't like a nose sticking out long. It was. It ran down her face, the length of her face. She had a longer face. If you can imagine the singer Cher. Cher's got that longer face, elongated face. She's got the high cheekbones. She's got the, you know, pointy out chin or a little bit of a, she looked like that a bit. So she wasn't unattractive in the face. She was very, very attractive. But when I say she had a big, long nose or whatever, it just suited her features. She had a longer face than ours. Um, just absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. Her lips were just perfect. Um, I mean, you couldn't find a fault in this person. Um, what? A, well, as soon as I pushed away from her and I swallowed whatever hit the back of my throat and I had this chemical reaction or it felt like I drank acid and I, I started to feel uncomfortable and started coughing. I see the blonde female look over at the Asian female and they were com communicating telepathically. It wasn't a voice. I wasn't hearing a voice in my head. It was a feeling. It was a knowing. It was, it was in my mind rather than in my head hearing something. And it was... She was saying, he's done this wrong. Something's gone wrong. It's not like the last time he's done this wrong. And here I am again thinking, what fucking last time? What are you talking about? What the and heck? I'm, yeah. And she's like, he's done this wrong. Something's gone wrong. And she was like looking over, side on, looking over at the other, at the Asian female. The Asian female didn't respond. I didn't pick up any telepathic information or anything, but she was there observing or watching. I don't know if she was teaching or she was learning. But she was definitely there watching. And, um, yeah, they, it was that sort of communication. There was a bit of telepathic communication with me and probably lasted about 
20 seconds and it was so quick, so rapid. And I was saying to myself there and then, I was like, how am I going to remember this? Like I knew it was information for me, but I just couldn't. And, it, and I've got this thing, you will remember it. When you need to, you will remember it. And I've remembered certain things. There's a couple of things since. But anyway, as I'm look doing this, I'm getting this feeling in the back of my throat and I start coughing. I get the worst coughing fit. And as I start, I look down to cough. I'm coughing. I look up. Females are gone, vanished. Within a split second, they're gone. So as quickly as they bloody appeared in my room, they disappeared quicker than they appeared. I couldn't even... I just coughed, looked up, they were gone. Anyway, I jumped out of bed. I stood up and I was thinking to myself, am I dreaming? Is this a dream? Is this really happening? But then there's my throat burning and I'm coughing like crazy. So I went into the kitchen. I had to have something to drink. Get, I had a li little bit of Lebanese bread and a little bit of water. And as soon as I drank the water, it was like I poured more acid. It reacted with whatever was in my throat. And it was just the worst reaction than before. And I started coughing again. And when I'd start coughing, I would cough for 20 minutes straight, 20 minutes straight, nonstop coughing. Anybody that coughs for that long, your insides will ache, your back aches, everything aches. So I was starting to feel you know, uncomfortable. I was in pain. My body was aching. My organs were aching. Anyway, I had, to, I had the urge to go to the bathroom. So I went to go to the bathroom and pee. And as I stood there to pee, just before I peed, I felt like my penis had been slashed with razors, like it, like someone had just slashed my pieces, penis with razors. And as I looked, I noticed that there were two hairs under my foreskin and one was like as an S and the other one was sort of half wrapped around, but they were embedded in into my the skin on my penis. And I know it's hard to talk about, but you know what, it happened. I'm going to talk about it. I don't care. But um, yeah, it, if you grab your fingernail and pushed it against your skin and it leaves that mark, that indentation, when I when I was trying to take the hairs off, that's what they left behind. They left a trace of where they were, but it was embedded into my skin. People have said to me, oh, you should have taken a photo. Yeah, maybe I should have, but not that I was showing it to anyone. But you don't think like that when, you, when you're going through this stuff. You don't think, oh, go get the camera. And there wasn't mobile phones with cameras then. You don't think, oh, I'll go grab the camera put a, and take a photo of my, come on, you know? But people are, yeah, people can be critical about a lot of different things, but that's one of them that annoys me. But anyway, mate, as I removed the hairs, I was in tears. It was that painful. I've never experienced pain like that. And I've been through major pain. It was excruciating pain as I peeled these hairs off me. Oh, my God, it was like they were embedded in me and I was, tearing them out. It was so painful. I had tears running down my eyes. It was so painful. So I knew those hairs had to be from the experience that night, uh, that morning, sorry. So I went and grabbed um, a bag. I put them in a bag. I sealed it and I put a note on it, the date, the time, and the I put, you know, incident with two females. Um, anyway, about, it was probably about half an hour, maybe, maybe up between half an hour and an hour after this happened, I rang my um, wife. She was at work. She would have got to work by that stage. I rang her and she answered the phone. And I'm talking to her. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry, who am I talking to? And I was like, what's wrong? It's your husband. It's Peter. And she was like, oh, my God. It doesn't even sound like you. Your voice is so different. I said, yeah, I know. I've been coughing. I've been coughing like crazy, having coughing fits for 20 minutes. I'm like, look, 
something happened to me. I need to talk to you about it, but I'm not ready to talk about it now. When I am ready and I do talk about it, just relay my story, what I tell you, relate it to this coughing that I'm having now. And I'm coughing as I'm talking to her, you know. Anyway, we hung up. Um, she come home and we talked about it. And I said, look, I'm not ready to talk about it yet. I'll tell you when I'm ready. It took me about three weeks. I think it was probably 18 days afterwards that I actually, I felt a bit guilty. I felt guilty that how am I going to tell my partner there were two females in my room, in our bedroom, on our bed? doesn't matter how understanding they are, how open-minded they are. They're going to have question marks, you know? Is he telling me that? But why would you? Why would you go and tell your partner you had two women in your house at seven o'clock in the morning if it was something, you know, untoward? You were doing something wrong, so you wouldn't. But anyway, I um, took me about eighteen days, I believe, before I told her. And um, when I explained it to her and we talked about it, she shocked me actually because her reaction to it all was, I thought she'd be confused and you know be a bit angry about it. Um, from the point of view that, you know, these things are happening to people and they can't control it. It's not fair. But no, she said to me, she goes, look, I don't, I can't, I don't blame you. It wasn't your decision. Um, it's not like you picked up a girl on the way back home and brought her to our room. She goes, it's something out of your control. And I was like blown away by the way she looked at it and which helped me to think that way as well. I thought, you know what? She's right. It is out of my control. It's not something I instigated or asked for. Mm -hmm. Um, so that helped me deal with it a little bit more from a personal and, you know, from, you know, in relationship point of view, um, that was, that was a good way to deal with it. And after that, I, I was doing a program uh, that I had two female TV producers or film producers here. Now we're going to do a documentary about my story, my 88 experience that happened at my parents' house. And, um, one of them actually made a comment. Bill Chalker was here at the time. Um, he was an investigator. I didn't like Bill when we when I first was introduced to him. I, everyone in that committee I, were, I was with used to hate him. They used to say he was a government agent and he was against all the UFO stuff and he was trying to debunk UFOs and abductions. And what I found out was why would Bill, if he was a debunker, write a book called Hair of the Alien and put my case out there in a good light? Why wouldn't he be critical of it um so i realized over the years that bill was a decent guy a good researcher who raised the bar so high that other researchers in australia couldn't even compete with him so they badmouthed him that's a way to get around it mm, yeah. so bill bill and i eventually became really really good friends and I, he actually works with me now we both work in security and bill retired from the scientific field so he does security with me as well um i saw him yesterday like, we're really good mates and um so Bill was over at my house and we were talking about this documentary they wanted to do. And one of the female producers made a comment about, oh, just a flippant off the hand comment like, oh, Peter, you know what? If this is real, this abduction stuff is real, there should be some evidence, you know, like an assault, sexual assault case. There's usually sperm or hair or something, something will, there'll be DNA. And I actually, for the first time, I said, you want to see evidence? I'll show you evidence. And I went into my room, got the hair sample, both hair samples that were in the bag, bought them out, and I said, you want evidence? There's evidence. And Bill's ears pricked up straight away. He's never heard me talk about this. And we waited till they left. And then Bill said to me, 
why haven't you showed me this? Why haven't you talked to me about this? I said, Bill, my 88, 1988 experience is a can is bad enough to explain on its own. I said, this is a can of worms I really don't want to get into. I go, so mate, it's a completely different story. And and he said, yeah, but you did you get the hair samples from one of the females? I'm like, yeah. Well, it was on my penis. I don't know where it came from. So he knew about the case. He knew about the hair. We discussed it briefly. He made comments. And then late 90s, I got a phone call from Bill. And I had the hair for about six years at that stage. So I think it was around 98, around nine, yeah, 1998. Um, Bill said to me, look, I have a colleague of friends who are scientists um, called the Invisible College. And if you like, we want to do, um, want to test a hair sample. We want to do some uh, DNA testing on it. Would you be interested? And I was like, yep, let's fucking do it. Like straight up. I had nothing to hide. Um, anyway, they came and took the hair samples and went and tested them. And the first results were so, so out of left field that they were so unexpected that they came back and they took hair samples from me, from my um, ex-wife. Um, they tested those hairs and they were nothing like the hairs that they tested. And um, the initial testing of the hair uh, was done on the shaft of the hair and it showed rare Chinese mitochondrial DNA. All that the hair was transparent, see-through looking like a fishing line. It wasn't black like Asian hair would be. It showed the rarest uh, mitochondrial DNA on the planet. Only about four people might have similar. Um, then later on, when they tested, they did a nuclear DNA test on the root of the hair. They found that there was a um, uh, Basque Gaelic blonde uh, blue-eyed connection to the root. So in the one hair sample, there were two DNA results, two distinctly different DNA results. One was the root had blonde DNA, um, Scandinavian, Nordic, whatever you want to call it. And then the shaft had the Asian, rare Asian uh, mitochondrial DNA. And they also found a CCR5 gene deletion, um, deletion where um, it's, it protects you against uh, catching diseases, um, sexually transmitted diseases or smallpox or so on. And if you're going to, now, when, when I first told, spoke about this story to, to Bill, he got some people and I had about, I think it was about 10, 12 people sat on a panel and I sat on a chair in front of them and they just bombarded me with questions for about three, four hours. And I remember during that question and answer time, they were making notes, you know, I was telling my story and I remember telling them when I looked at her stomach, I didn't see a belly button. And one of them was like, what do you mean? I said, I didn't see a belly button. I think whoever made them, this was my comment at the time. I think whoever made them, made them for a reason. If they made these women or beings, there'll be male and female, I guess, to interact with us sexually, obviously they're going to make them so they can't, catch diseases and that i wasn't even thinking about these results at the time i was just saying what i was thinking feeling and um so yeah when when all the tests came out and um they realized and that's when bill decided to write the book hair of the alien and he was doing it which was uh, published in 2005 um 2004 bill was interviewing my family and that's when my mum walked into the room and said what are you talking about and my brother told her and she described when I was 22 days old. Um, so you could say my first experience happened when I was 22 days old. 
and you know I've had him ever since, and I've had numerous experiences. Um, just quickly to move on from the DNA stuff and the hair sample, uh, well, samples, it was two hairs. Um, I've had a couple of other experiences, and one that sticks to mind is one where I was taken on a craft, and I remember being taken to a place. I don't know if it was a building or another object, but I remember pulling up beside it, and it had uh, the darkest tinted windows you've ever seen with this snow white color on it. It looked like the whole building was lit up, actually, and as if the paint was lit. Not There was no light source. But um, I remember being floated out onto this room and I'm dropping from the ceiling. I'm, I'm at the top of the ceiling from like coming through the roof. And I remember coming through the roof, through the ceiling, and I could see the light fitting. And I, as I'm dropping down, I look down and there's a lady, you know, in her forties, uh, early forties, say sleeping on this bed, looking straight up at me, eyes open, looking straight at me. She could see me obviously. And as I, was floating really slowly floating, but I was floating down towards her. And as I got probably a foot away from her, and when I when I mean a foot away from her, I mean I'm parallel to her, floating above her, face to face, feet to feet. So I was completely on top of her, and I was a, I was about a foot above her, and I saw her face. She had fear. I mean, who wouldn't? She she had this fear fear in her eyes, in her, in her face. I could see she was scared. And I seen a tear roll down on the side of her eye, a tear roll down. And I actually looked at her and I mouthed the words, I'm so, so, so sorry. I remember saying to her, I'm so, so sorry. And um, years later, years later, I was reading a book by Richard uh, uh, Boylan, I think it is. And I've, I'm trying to track the book. So is Bill. We've got, I've got to track it because I'm writing my book now. And that's I'm, I've mentioned it in there. And I want to actually reference that page in that book. Um, I know the author. So once I find the book, his books, I'll go through them and I'll find it. But um, there's a story in there on one of the pages. And he talks about this woman who's in her 40s at the time when this thing happened, who says a, a, being, a, a person came down from the ceiling, floated towards her. And as he got above her, it was like, you know, inches away from her face. He, he mouthed to her, I am so, so sorry. When I read that, I dropped the book. I just put the book down on the table. And I was like, no way, no way. Holy like, shit. Yeah. How, how often do you hear this happening? Now, I've spoken to people about this and they've said to me, oh, you got to find her. you got to find who this person is. No, I don't. No, I don't. Because... It may suit me and my agenda or my, you know, research to find her and, and you know, pin it down. But what about her? What about if she's not ready? What about if she doesn't want to know? What about if she has a partner who doesn't, isn't into Like, I can't throw my stuff onto someone and I don't know where they're at. So I'm not even looking to talk to the author and find out who that person is. It, 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 to me, it would be great if I can just find that reference and include it so people can re reference it and go back and look at it and read it and see it. And maybe, maybe that person might read that account or that author might read it and tell her about it. Maybe from her point of view, if she touches base with me, yeah, I'll follow it up. But other than that, I won't do it. Um, mm. Look, And then we're talking about 
you mentioned to me that you're into helping people clear entities or you know spirits or whatever in it from their homes. Um, that's what I'm 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 addressing this in in part of the book, and I'm going to actually call it high strangeness. And I've been talking about this stuff for a while now. A lot of people take it for granted, and there is a lot of lot of high strangeness around the UFO stuff, alien UFO um, experiences, and the phenomena. Um, I think once you open, once you open that link, and you've got contact with these beings, I think other things can come through as well, and. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately for me, it's happened. I do have things in my house. I've had numerous things happen here. Like we've we've changed four doorbells in a in a period of six months um, because we'd have a house full of people and the doorbell would be going off and people would run to the door and there'd be no one there. And towards the end, we just had to just ignore the doorbell. Don't worry about the doorbell anymore. And it would ring and no one would even you know, flinch or say, oh, someone's at the door. We'd know there'd be no one there. In, in six months, we, we changed the doorbell four times and it kept doing it. It hasn't done it for a long time now. But what I've had to happen recently, um, with our activity in this house from the first day we, we, we walked in this house, from the very first day, we had heavy footsteps walking in. It was just me and my ex at the time. Um, we, just, uh, we just got, I think we just, bought the house and we're going to renovate it. We rented out for two years before we got married. We bought it in 88. We got married in 90. So when we bought it, we thought we'd, you know, give it a clean up, paint it. So her and I sitting here, we had a milk crate. We had a box of pizza, uh, ordered a pizza. We had a little, my little Toshiba television and that's all we had. We're sitting here. We're going to do some painting and that. And we heard these heavy footsteps marching up. And as it got around to the room where we were, there was an archway entry. It just came up to us and just stood there, mustard source and gone, whoa, they're not supposed to be here. And we looked up and there's this, we thought we're going to see something, but it banged footsteps, heavy footsteps right in front of us and stopped. That was the first time ever. We both looked at each other and thought, oh my God, what's going on? And then it just escalated to a point two years later when we moved in, um, she was cooking something, Vivian was cooking something and asked me to go up the shop and grab a couple of ingredients. And I've walked out the door and a minute later, she heard footsteps, someone walking in the house and she thought, oh, Peter's come back real quick, must have forgotten something. So as she's in the kitchen, she turns around to see who's walking through the front door into the lounge room and she sees what she thought, what she described as a man like Abraham Lincoln in a suit with a tail the jacket had a long tail. He had a hat on and he had a beard, a long, long, long beard, and uh, walked across the archway, across the lounge room towards a mirrored wall and actually sort of looked towards her and kept walking. I came back home about 15 minutes later and as I walked in the door, I walked past the archway in front of the lounge room towards the kitchen. I saw her. She was still in the same spot with her hands gripping the kitchen bench, her, like her back to the bench, her hands were on either side, gripping the kitchen bench, and she was shaking like a leaf. She was shaking. And I was like, what's your okay? She goes, Peter, there's a, excuse my French again. She's like, there's a fucking man in the house. I'm like, what? She's like, a man just walked in our house. There's a man in our house. So I start searching everywhere. And she's like, he was in the lounge room. I haven't seen him leave the lounge room. But he's walked towards this mirrored wall, apparently, that was here before. Anyway, the room that he would have walked, if he walked through that mirrored wall, 
into the other room, the spare room. I when I had when we had my son, I used to sleep in that room because my I worked in the building game at the time in the building trade, and I'd get up at five five thirty in the morning, and um, he had restless nights, so he'd cry through the nights, and so I'd sleep in the spare room to get a couple of hours sleep, and every time I slept in that room, I'd wake up with scratches on my legs or on my body, on my hands, on my but mainly mainly on my legs. Um, we eventually both went in. We we both went into that room, and we checked. Sorry, we checked the mattress, and we felt the mattress and put our hands and put pressure on there to see if there was a pin, if there was a needle, if there was something sticking out that would scratch you. But there was nothing. Anyway, I've got photos of all these over the years. Every scratch I've had on me, almost every scratch I've had, I take a photo and I keep it on record. So I've got some photos, pictures somewhere of actual photos, and I've got new all the new ones on my phone. Um, we've had multiple things happen, but one of the latest ones that happened to me was 2020, um, three years ago, and it was this is this is really strange. It was the first of the first, the first of January, 2020, at 4:55 in the morning. I just finished my security job doing an, um, a New Year's Eve event. I came home. I'm sitting here for a couple of hours, just relaxing, unwinding. And um, all of a sudden, as I'm sitting here, I felt – I didn't feel anything grab me. I just felt like a burning sensation on my leg, on the inside of my leg. I've got a, I've got a cup – like my right leg from my knee down has tattoos and I've got an alien, uh, sorry, and uh, a DNA spiral on the back of my calf from my Achilles heel, say up to just back of my knee. It's a DNA spiral and it's like an old tattered DNA and then another spiral comes out of it and it's almost like arms and then there's a head of a creature with the big black eyes on there. And then on the side of my ankle at the bottom, I've got a little UFO tattoo and on the outer side of my ankle I've got an alien like a little grey little guy standing there so that leg's dedicated to that and um, I felt it on that leg on that same leg where the UFO tattoo is it's like a cartoonish tattoo and um, I felt burning on there and as I touched it with my hand my fingers were wet so I had a look and I, I couldn't tell why it would be wet you know I couldn't see anything and I looked at the where the tattoo is and where the burning was and I couldn't see anything. But as I looked, I could see little droplets of blood coming out of my skin. And as I'm looking, I can see my skin cutting, like something scratching my skin. I can see this with my eyes. Whoa. It was as if you grabbed a, a, grabbed a scalpel, say, but a hot, hot scalpel, electric scalpels. And as you ran it down, it cauterized the, the mark. So there were little bits of blood here and there. You could see balls of little blobs of blood. But this thing was probably, I'd say, four or five inches long as it went up my leg. And I'm watching this thing cut my leg. So I went to from grab my phone and I went, took a photo, but I also put it on video. And as soon as I started filming, you could see it moves about five mil and then it stops. And then I'm, I filmed it and it wasn't moving any further up. So I stopped filming it. Now, as I'm standing, sitting there again, I, I've taken the photo. There's no other scratches on my leg, only this one scratch going through the tattoo. The next, 
I get more burning on the back of my leg. And I'm like, shit, I have a look and there's two massive scratches um, all the way from the bottom of my uh, back of my heel all the way up to the under my knee and past my knee on the front. I had two big scratches. And then all of a sudden up under my knee on the inside of my, my leg, but under my knee, I got burning feeling there. And as I looked, I saw three distinct scratches appear. Like I, I saw these happen. It wow. was happening right in front of my eyes. I could not believe it. And to be honest with you, it fucking freaked me out. I've had alien experiences. I've seen five aliens all up and more actually, but I've seen a couple of different types. I've had them up close, I've in my face, you know, abducted, all that stuff. I can deal with that. But this terrified me. And because it, I don't know, it just it was happening right there. I thought, where's it going to stop? How badly can it hurt me? And then at four, five o'clock in the morning or five past five in the morning, I think it was at the time, I actually text my niece and I said to her, look, something just happened to me. I can't, I don't know how to explain it, but if something happens to me, I didn't do it to myself. So please, please understand that. Like I wanted to get the point if my throat was cut or if my wrist was cut, I didn't do that. Oh That's God. what concerned me. Like it's cutting me on the leg and that, but where else can it cut me? And I had no control how to stop it or anything that terrified me. And, um, I've had another another experience in 2017 where um, I've never heard of this in my life. And then I'd spoke to Bill Chalko about it and he showed me something from 1915. A medium was doing a seance and there were people there and this eagle appeared and someone took a photo and the eagle's right there at the guy's shoulder. Mate, I'm sitting in my lounge room and um, I had a little bird, a budgery guard, like uh, it was a white budgie. And um, I had the, I'd always keep the cage open. The budget could fly in and out of the cage. It used to fly around the room, come and land on my shoulder. So I was accustomed to it coming and landing behind me on the lounge or, you know, jumping onto my shoulder. So as I'm sitting here, I hear birds, bird wings, like feathers flapping. And I actually thought it was my bird, but it's only a little budgie. Like couldn't have made that much noise, but that's what I thought at the time. And I thought it was close to my ear, so that's why it sounded loud and big. And as I heard the noise of the wings flap in, I'm thinking, oh, shit, it's going to land on me. And as I turned to look behind me, I look, you know, at my shoulder. As I've looked, I saw this eagle, like full-sized eagle in my lounge room. And it had one wing. I was sitting down on the lounge. It had one wing, that the left wing, that wrapped around my left shoulder to in front of me, I could see it in front of me as well, like on, on the side. And then the rest of the bird landed on the lounge that's next to me. There's a three-seater lounge next to me. It landed on the armrest. And as it landed, it pulled its wings in and was together. And I, as I looked up at it on the top of its head, right on the top of its head on the crown, it looked like it had, looked like an eggshell. There was this white, very thin white layer. It all, it looked almost like a, like a cloak like a veil, but it only, and it, but it, it looked solid. It looked plasticky in a way, or I don't know. It didn't, it wasn't moving like material would. And it was like, it was like it had a helmet on or something, but very, very thin, very, very thin. And um, it, it just went down the back of its neck a little bit and then faded off. I couldn't see it anymore, but it definitely had like 
protection or something on its head. I don't know, it could have been like a halo. I don't know. But anyway, it landed on the arm of the chair. And as it folded its wings close to its body, I've taken note. And this thing would have been, I'd say, two to three foot from top to bottom. But it was, so it was landed on the, on the armrest. And I'm looking at it. And as I look down, I get to the tail section. And to me, the tail section, the whole tail looked like it was made from mosaics, like crystals and emeralds and jewels and rubies and diamonds. It was all these little jewel things made of the tail. And as soon as my eyes reached the bottom of the tail, all these jewels started breaking up and started hitting the tiles. I got tiled floor in my lounge room. I could actually hear them. Imagine you grabbed a whole bunch of those glassy, crystally rocks, little pebbles and that, and you just threw them on your on your tiled floor and just let them fall out of your hand slowly, how they hit the, the tiles and they be bouncing around, making noise everywhere and all that, just increase and increase. And I could hear it all. Now, my partner that's with me now, Mary, she actually said to me, did you try and catch one of those jewels or did you look for one later? Like, maybe that's what it all was. I said, no, I didn't. I didn't even think of that. Didn't even think. Maybe they it was dropped on purpose for me to find something. I don't know. But wow. as soon as the tail started to break apart, it started from the bottom and it went all the way up and then the whole thing started to break apart. And once it vanished, I actually stood up for about, I'd say, 10, 15 seconds, I stood up and I thought, what the fuck just happened? And as I stood there, right against, on the other side of the room now, on the opposite wall, I heard, and at the time I thought it was somebody outside on the side of my house, which is pretty well secured. I thought someone was outside banging on the walls trying to, you know, be a smart ass or something, but I just thought, no, nah, the timing is third, then this. But what I heard was then I eventually realized it was then I thought it might have been inside my kids' rooms. Then I thought, no, it's outside. It's in the lounge room. But it's it's actually the wall that backs the other side of the wall is my son's room. And then there's a doorway leading to a bathroom. And then on the other, as you keep walking down, there's my daughter's room. So it's one big long wall. And what I heard was like almost as if this bird backed itself against the wall and then was turning round. And every time it turned, you hear the wings hit the, or this is what I basically heard. Like banging like that, 12, uh, 10 times. And then two, the last two were against the back door and I could tell it was different. The vibration, the noise was, it was the door. You know, when you hit a door, you can fit, hear the lock moving. You can, you'd see, feel the door rattle. It's different than banging on a wall. So I heard 10, 10 bangs one after the other. And to me, it, it, it did. It felt like the wings were spread out and it was just turning and it was just hitting the wall as it was turning. Bang, 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 bang. And then boom, boom on the back of the door. And then out, it went out. I don't know. But that's th those two experiences that I've just told you now, the cuts on my legs. And I've got photos. I can send you a couple of the photos of the cuts on my legs. will freak you out. And this bird thing, I've probably the strangest things I've experienced other than the alien stuff. I mean, to me, the alien stuff isn't so strange. I'm so accustomed to it now. Um, but yeah, this stuff really has an impact on me more so. I don't know why. I don't know why I'm so accepting of the alien phenomena and my experiences with aliens and even though it's abductions and, you know, 
against your own will or whatever. Um, I deal with it a lot better than I do with this stuff. So, um, you know, I've had a few other experiences. I, I tend to just stick to the conscious recall ones. I don't like to um, elaborate on the experiences I've had where I don't have full conscious recall or I've remembered something under hypnotherapy. I just like to keep that out. I, I don't want to muddy the waters. Um, it's it's a hard enough um, phenomena and, you know, experience to look into. I don't want to complicate it and muddy the waters more. I want to give people the clearest picture that I can so when they look in, look, I can understand there'd be people listening to your podcast or others or watch I've been on Asian Aliens. I've been on many different things. I can understand people sitting there going, ah, I can't fucking believe people believe this shit or whatever. <laughs> but you know what? Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And if you someone puts a case forward in front of you and asks you to believe it or listen to it, I think you should always look at the evidence that supports it. And if the evidence backs it up, and support my case has been 31 years now since 1992 it's been 31 years um in 2011 i did a show a tv show which i didn't want to be involved in but the producers kept calling me over a period of three months they called me almost on a daily basis and then the last phone call i got was peter if you believe in this field and you want to give it credibility we think you should get involved because the person we're using in the show every bit of evidence that they're putting forward has crumbled and it doesn't look good for the field. And at the time I thought, I don't care. And then later on, I spoke to a couple of people and, you know, and they said, look, maybe you should um, do it and tell your story to give it, to, you know, give it credibility. And I ended up doing it, but they came and filmed me, interviewed me. And then the next day I got a phone call unexpected and uh, one of the guys who was a scientist said, oh, Peter, you know, last yesterday, your story was so interesting and so detailed. I was wondering, would you um, do a lie detector test? And I'm telling you now, Michael, without even breathing, without without even thinking about it. I was. If you watch the show, it's called uh, My Mum Talks to Aliens. And what it was, it was about a therapist. Her name's Mary. She's never seen an alien. She's never seen a UFO. But she's a therapist and she helps people and in 2003, 10 years after I started the UFA Experience Support Association, she founded a support group for people. And and um, so, yeah, she's just a therapist who does work. She's never, but they called the show My Mum Talks to Aliens, which was stupid, and it really offended her. They told her it was going to be a running um, uh, title and it would be changed before it went to air, but it went to air as that, and it really, really upset her because it's false. She, she doesn't have any experiences, so... You know, but the show was called My Mum Talks to Aliens. You listeners are well, you know, welcome to have a listen to it and see. There was a guy, ex Australian SAS Navy SEAL. Uh, he was her client. I wasn't. I was. I worked with Bill Chalker. He was the guy who did my research, my case, and documented it. Um, but um, the guy that she worked with was an ex Navy SEAL, credible. You know, told a story that was unbelievable. And when they put him through the uh, polygraph um, test he failed because all his memories are from regression from hypnotherapy and uh, Mary was the one who regressed him and that's why I didn't want to be involved in the show there were a lot of issues I had with the way the claims she was making and this indigo kids and that or most of the kids now are half alien half human they're inbreds they're the new you know show me the evidence to back it up I'm all for 
look at my case, my DNA and the hair samples back it up. They support my case. Anyway, I ended, he ended up doing a lie detector test and he failed. I did the, on the same show, I did a lie detector test and I passed it. Now, her son is the scientist and what happened was this lady's family broke apart. She was showing her son why she was so interested. She wanted the proof to him and show him the proof and she couldn't. He wasn't convinced. So they in the, in the, in the show, they say, She's got the sleeve, the ace card up her sleeve, meaning my my case. She's got the the ace card. Um, they portrayed it as if I was one of her clients, which I wasn't. I'm another fellow researcher and investigator. I've probably got more experience than her doing this stuff. But um, she's got a clinical background, so you know, she, people listen to her more, I guess. But anyway, um, when I when the when the guy who did the polygraph conducted the polygraph, he said to them, oh, "I guess you want to know." He said, "Peter passed. He passed easily. Like I believe Peter is telling the truth." And I my my thing was, "Okay, I'm happy." That was my response to it. But then I said, "I want to know what Chris thinks." And Chris says, "He's the guy who asked me to take the test, right?" Now, if you if I'm going to ask you to take a test, I ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to do it because I believe that what I'm asking you to do is going to back up. It's evidence-based, you know, it's going to support your case or it's going to discredit it. So he asked me to do the polygraph. I did it. I passed it. So I said, I want to know what Chris thinks now. And you know what his, his reply to me was? Oh, I believe Peter believes it. And that fucking pissed me off. I got so pissed off at that comment. I believe Peter believes it. Like he asked me to take a polygraph because I thought it's hundred percent. It's going to tell if I'm lying or not. That's why I jumped at it and said, yes. And in the show, you see him, they cut back to him. And I didn't see this till I saw the show. And he says, he actually says, oh, wow. you got to give the guy some credit. I ask him to do polygraph. He doesn't even say, I'll think about it. I'll get back to you. Yep, I'll do it. Let's do it. And I actually said to him at the time, I said, yep, let's do it. I've been wanting to take the truth serum that the military use. I'll be happy to do that as well. Like I've got nothing to hide. I've got a story to tell. And if you believe me, if you don't, I don't care. Because my my whole aim in this from day one, the reason I started the support group, the reason I do this, I want to connect. I want people when they hear my story and they've gone through similar things to me, I want them to say, to sit there and say, I can relate to that. I think I've had similar experiences or I know I've had the same experience as this guy and hopefully reach out to me or better still start talking about their case publicly. Talk about your experiences. Don't hide from it. It's, it's happening. Whether people want to believe it or not, I really don't care. I'm not, I'm not making a dollar out of this. I don't make money. Ever since I've been involved in this UFO field, if anything, it's cost me thousands of dollars out of my pocket. If you have a look at my book, my, my office and my book collection, you'll see how much money I've spent just on books alone. All my interviews, all everything I do, TV shows, documentaries, I don't charge a cent for it. I was never in this for money. I'm writing a book now and I might, if I'm lucky, make a few grand out of that. But that's if I, you know, I've got to finish it first. I've got to get it published and see what happens. But to me, it's not about money. It's not about, you know, fame. To me, it's about connecting with those other people out there who had similar experiences to me, but don't know who to turn to. A lot of people come from Christian backgrounds. I had a young guy, he was a, a up and coming pianist. He was a very good piano player. And 
he had an experience and he wrote me this heartbreaking letter actually. Um, he was 16 years old, I think. He went, told his family that he's had him in these alien experiences. His family took him to psychologists. Psychologists straight out put him in a mental institution. Jeez. Like that was, it, it was heartbreaking. And the kid was like crying in the letter and saying, I know I'm not crazy, but how can I convince these people? And they're putting, they want to, they got me in a mental institution and there's nothing wrong with me, you know. And the doctor attended one of my um, concerts a week before. And now all of a sudden I'm crazy. It broke my heart, but that's, they're the people I want to reach out to and, and hopefully connect with. And if I can get them to even start looking, not even go public and talk about their story, but start looking into this and research and look into their own experiences. And that's what I'm about. And if I can achieve that, and if I can get, you know, 1% of the population to do stuff like that, then I'm, I've succeeded in more, you know, I'm more than happy, basically. But that's that's my story, Michael. And, you know, I, I just wanted to thank you for the way you portrayed it and the way you, you told my story. Because I was, to be honest with you, 31 years and we're driving up. We were on holidays. We went away for a couple of days and we're driving back. And um, as we're driving, she actually looked up uh, podcasts. And I think yours was the, one of the first or second. And she goes, oh, there's one called The Bunker. I said, put it on. She put it on and... As you're telling my story, just just how honest you were about it, and just how respectful you were. And it wasn't about that you were you were you know believe like oh he believes me. It wasn't. It was just the way you told things. It just confirmed it to me, and it hit me so hard, like it really emotionally got me. And I had to pull over, and I had to get out of the car. I had tears in my eyes, mate. Like it really, really emotionally got me i don't I, it's never ever ever happened to me i'm a really strong person i've i've dealt with this for 31 years i've never shed a tear over it and i had to pull up and get out of the car and just take a breather and go for a walk i'm getting a bit emotional now i don't know what it's just the way you told it and i think it was just how much effort you put into it and i thought you know this guy's gone above and beyond to tell my story and tell it right you know, and it really meant a lot to me. And I want to thank you for that. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome, Peter. And uh, yeah, I, I I just I had such a good time just kind of sitting back and just letting you go and not interrupting. I, I usually like to jump and interject and ask. Sorry for about that. I, Sorry. Oh, yeah, no, no, please. No, please don't. I, I usually like to something I usually have to jump in and ask someone to clarify certain points or amplify a certain thing or maybe explain something, some certain facet a little bit more. In your case, it wasn't even necessary um and uh yeah and again I, I i'm honored that i got the chance to tell your story and uh and i was touched that you were so touched by it and uh you, you know and it's it's because i can relate to certain portions of your story and and it just wouldn't you know i like i said earlier my first um my first you know exposure to your story was from you personally telling your story and uh, and I listened to the interview over and over again and replayed certain portions. I took notes and was cross-referencing things. And and I just I I can speak to the truth of your story because I, you know, I, I have sat in a room with with people, even with other investigators and had certain things happen right in front of my eyes that were plain as day. A figure walked from this room to that room. Um, 
you know, an object moving, you know, noises, like certain things. And it was plain as day to me, but in that, in the same room, other investigators had no idea what happened. Other people didn't hear it. They didn't see it. They, whatever. And so uh, I just, so I just know that, that a lot of the experiences that we have are completely subjective, but that does not mean that they're just in our head. You know, (laughs) there's a big difference between just a certain person at one out of five people, for example, experiencing something that doesn't mean it isn't real. That just means that the other people weren't their attention wasn't sort of focused on that. And so they just missed it, you know, and I just, it makes me wonder how many things in daily life that most people just never witness Never yeah. witness. Well, look, yeah. in 88, in 1988, before I had the experience at my parents' place, um, my fian- Vivian was my fiancé at the time. We were sitting in, this is this is uh, the 14th of February, um, 1988, so um, Valentine, Valentine's Day. We're sitting in my car. I had my back to my driver's door. She was in the passenger seat. She had her back to the driver's seat uh, door. And we're looking at each other. We're talking. We're discussing a trip. We're going up to Queensland. Um, she was going to go up a week before me and then we we're going to meet up a week later. And um, as we're talking, I stuck my head out the window and I saw this ball of light, uh, white, white, bright, white ball of light heading from north to south. And it got to the Southern Cross and it stopped at the highest point And it was like a triangular formation of stars. And it just shot, started shooting this beam of light. It appeared two places at once. It looked like a dumbbell, the one you do what weights with, like a weight um, um, thing, gym um, tool. Um, but it'd be in one spot, it'd shoot a thick beam of light, bright white beam of light. It'd appear two places at once. It'd disappear from point A. And then point B, it'd shoot another beam of light, appear in two places, disappear from point B. And then point C, but it was doing so erratical, back and forth, back and forth, but always in a triangular formation. And it did this for about two minutes and then stopped at the top start and then shot off. Her and I just stood there. I had a, got a cardboard and tunneled it to look like a, you know, tunnel my vision so I can have a point to look at. And as we're standing there, I said to her, she goes, oh, my God, it looks like a, 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 a war with the stars. And I was like, no, it looks like it's looking for something because I was thinking the beam of light was like a searchlight. I wasn't taking into account that it was showing at two places at once. It must have been moving that quick that you could see it in two places. And... um then it hovered at the top star and then shot up straight up into the sky. And I said to her, I go, tomorrow, it's going to be all over the news. It'll be in the papers. It'll be on TV. Because I thought if we saw it, and it happened about 8.30 at night, I thought if we saw it, there has to be thousands of other or hundreds of other people who saw it. There has to be. The next day, we looked at the papers. We looked at TV. Every, not a mention. Nothing. And I thought, how could no one see that? And then another time, we're here at my house. Um, my son was five months old. He was uh, born in 95. So he was uh, six mo- five months old at the time. My neighbour, they just had their baby. Shane is five months younger than Stephen. So my ex-wife and I and my best friend, who was my teacher, he used to be my teacher. He's actually my daughter's godfather. Um, we've been friends ever since. Me and a couple of the boys from school were friends with him all the way through. And we become such good friends. He's Chris and my daughter, he's her godfather. But anyway, we were here with his girlfriend um, and we were out the back and myself, Jeff and Christy, his girlfriend, and Vivian and my neighbor's husband, Paul, were standing outside in their backyard. We look up and in the sky, we saw like almost like the show Bonanza 
where the map opens up, starts burning, and then it opens up and, you know, there's a whole picture. But this wasn't burning. It was just like the sky almost tore open. It was like there was a tear in the sky. And then it was like you're opening your eye very slowly, opening a giant eye. And this sky just opened up like a big eye. But we could see another world, another place. But it was more, it was all farmland, like uh, green grass, all different shades of greens and yellows, different patches of grass, different colours and flowers and so on. And we followed this fence. But only Christy, Jeff and I could see it. Vivian and Paul, my wife and my neighbour's husband, were standing right next to us. And we're pointing at the thing. It was high as a tree level. It was a tree that's still there now. And we were looking in that direction and we're like, and we, we were, I was thinking it was where we were standing, the angle. So I grabbed my wife and I said, stand right in front of me. Look, can't you see it? She's like, see what? I'm like, can't you see the bloody image? There's a picture there. You can see like farmland. Now, but Christy, Jeff and I, we saw the same thing because Christy said, oh, my God, can you see the old fence? And it was an old, old, like really torn down wooden fence from a farming property um, like, you know, old days where they just chopped trees up. They didn't have planers and machines to cut things. It was a really old fence that was falling apart in that. And then as we come down the fence, I'm like, can you see the gate, how it's broken? The gate was broken, leaning on one side. And she goes, oh, my God, the, under the tree. And I'm like, how big is that? It was a giant tree, one of the biggest trees I've ever seen in my life. And Jeff's like, the giant tree, can you see the giant tree? And as we're looking, we see near the gate, there's a walkway, a pathway, but it looked like it was done either by horses or by people walking. It wasn't cars. Like it wasn't wide enough to have a car driving there all the time and causing tracks. It looked like a pathway on foot. So it must have been from years ago or from another dimension, another world. But anyway, as we're looking onto this farm and we're following this foot trail heading towards the house, we didn't see the house. Um, we see three horses, white horses, running across the paddock. And no word of a lie, Michael, one of the horses stops, looks at us, actually sees us. We looked in its eyes like we're looking at each other. And it rears up and it just makes a noise and just fuck gallops away. And, and Christy's like, can you see the horse, how it reared up? And I'm like, which way is it running? She's going towards the gate. We're all confirming what we're seeing. But my wife and my neighbour didn't see anything nothing i don't know how to explain that wow. but maybe some people maybe some people are open-minded to that and some aren't but christy too when she was a younger girl and my mate likes dating younger girls so he's a he's a teacher he's 10 years older than me so he's turning jeff will be 69 um this year i'm turning 59 in april um christy was only young she was maybe in her 20s um, this happened uh, in 1995, so a while ago. But yeah, Christy, Christy was um, very. She was in 1920 at the time, and I think we were now 30s. Late, but, but anyway, um, I don't know. I don't know. There's an age difference. She still managed to see it. My wife is my age, and my neighbours, my they didn't see it. So I don't know what it is. I don't know. We're in the, standing in the same spot, looking at the same area. We could see it, but they, two of them couldn't. Three of us could, but two couldn't out of five. And the guy's wife went inside to check on a baby. By the time she came out, it was all over. And she was like, what are you guys screaming about? I heard you was getting excited. We're like, oh, we saw something in the sky and that tear open or whatever. But yeah, isn't it funny how certain people can see something and others can't? I don't get it.
That is super interesting. Uh, I, I've heard I've heard some researchers talk about people that have had near death experiences um, have also a heightened, you know, psychic sense or or have a tendency to experience more things, or may yeah. have more of a tendency to have sleep paralysis and have you know or super vivid dreams. Um, yeah. There there is there's a certain there's a certain thread that sort of connects all these things that um, I haven't figured out. Not sure we'll ever figure it out, but there does seem to be some connection between people that have like either super traumatic experiences, super heightened, emotionally yeah. charged experiences, near death experiences, well, that sort of thing. You know and, what? Yeah. Yeah. But I've, I've been discussing this with my new partner now. I've been, we've been dating for a couple of months now and um, you know, when, you find that person after being single for a while and you find that person and you just fit each other so well. And um, yeah, she's really open to this and very, very, very supportive. And um, I couldn't, you, that's all you want in a partner. You know, the worst thing would be to find someone that you're dating or going out with and they don't believe in this and they're always on your back about it. And <laughs> every time you make a comment about it, they're sarcastic. No, she's really, really good. But we're talking about this um, recently and, I was saying to her, like, with my experience in 92 with the two females, um, I actually think, because I had the head injury a couple of months before that, and um, I actually think they helped me by, I don't know if they released blood or pressure or did something, but there's a spot on my head that since that day, not not where they injected the, the optic fiber-looking needle on the side of my head, but right in the middle, almost on the middle of my head, on the top of my head, there's this one spot that is so tender. And I mean, it's like a pinhead almost, you know, like smaller than a match head. It's just this spot where any, and I know it's like they drained something out of there. And I, I, I think they help like save, save me in a way. And, I know with Travis Walton as well. I'm, I don't know how you feel about Travis's case, but I believe Travis. I've met him. We're friends. And um, Travis, I asked him a question. No one no one had talked about this to him before. He was in Australia in 97, I think it was, and I took him and, and Dana, who was his wife at the time. I, they're separated now. I took him to Steve Irwin's um, crocodile farm in Queensland. And as we were driving there, Dana was sitting in the back in the middle of the seat with her, you know, hands over our, our chair, our seats as we're driving. She's in the middle and talking and Travis was in the front seat and he's, he asked me a lot of questions about my story. So I was very open to him, even about their sexual aspect of it, which I never talked to anyone about. And um, we started talking about his and I said to him, I want to ask you a question. You don't have to answer it, but it's since I read your story from the first minute I read it, that's been on my mind. And he said, go ahead, ask. And I said, mate, do you think you were fatally wounded? Like, mate, basically almost killed. And they took you to bring you back. And he started crying, like tears came down. And he actually nodded. He goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, I think they revived me. And Dana put her hand on my shoulder and squeezed it. She's like, Peter, because you opened up to him, He's just shared this with you. He's never, ever spoken about this to anyone. So Travis thinks that he was dead, and that's why they took him for five days to revive him, to bring him back. 
which is interesting. Wow, that is super interesting. I'm, yeah. I'm not. I'm not sure if I heard that from somewhere or not. Yeah, he, he talks about it now. Like I've heard him mention it on the documentary now, where he uh, says, "Yeah, okay. I, I okay. think I think I was fatally wounded, and they took me for that long to get me back." I've heard him actually mention it, but I'm talking 1997 when we talk about this. You know, it was funny. We went, he wanted to take uh, some Cascade uh, beer, which is beer bottles, and they have the Tasmanian tiger printed on them. You know, the extinct Tasmanian tiger. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's an animal. It's like a, it's like a, um, a dingo. And um, right, it's right. got stripes on it. Anyway, it's on the, it's on the actual bottle, beer bottle. And we, we went to every, as we're coming back from Steve Irwin's Crocodile Farm, we went to every major bottle shop, like big bottle shops, Dan Murphy's or these big, big outlets looking for Cascade beer. We couldn't find it, mate. We gave up. We went back to the hotel. And as we're sitting in the hotel foyer, uh, the posters for his film, for the film um, um, Fire in the Sky, he had some of the posters laminated and he was selling them. So I said, how many you got left? He goes, 15. I said, I'll take a lot of them. And he goes, no, no, you don't have to do that. I go, mate, I'll take the top lot of them. Just autograph them. Just put your autograph and that's it. And uh, so I bought the fifth, last 15. And he gave them to me at half price anyway. But as we, as he's signing the, the, the poster, I look across the road. This is at the hotel we're staying in. I look across the road and I see this tiny, tiny doorway, little, little shop, like tiny shop. It must have been maybe, I reckon, one and a half metres by three metres. You know, one and a half metres wide by three metres long or two and a half metres long. Anyway, okay, there's a bottle shop across the road. And he's like, Peter, we've been to all the biggest bottle shops in, in Queensland and we can't find it. Do you think they're going to have it? I said, mate, I'll go and have a look. He goes, I'll come with you. We walk down there, me, him and Dana, three of us walk in there. Excuse me, mate, you got any cascade? But yeah, mate, in the fridge right there. So Travis buys two cases and he wanted to take them home to show his mates and give them a bottle of beer with that. So we looked all over Queensland, couldn't find him. And there it was in the smallest little bottle shop. And it was, that's a story he'll never forget. And every time someone says something on Facebook and that, and they go, oh, I'll, I'll tell Travis, see if he knows you. I said, just tell him, he knows Peter Curry, who I am. I said, but just tell him to tell you the story about the Cascade beer. He'll tell you a story. <laughs> it was so funny. Yeah. But um, look, I, I don't know. I've, I've had people... Like when I did the interview with Erica Luke's, uh, Scott Brown, who's an offsider, um, he's completely against Travis and Travis's story. They think it was the um, water tank or something or light lighthouse light or something. I reckon they've been a bit harsh on him. And I know Erica and Scott, Scott did a, after doing with Erica Luke's, he did another podcast with a mate of his and they were, tearing apart Travis Walton's story and then he actually mentions my story and he says now the Peter Curry case people this is what you should be looking at it's got evidence DNA that's what we need to be looking at I get that I get that but I'll tell you now Travis is telling the truth yeah 100% plus you can't the, see his case too is not just him saying and just or just the crew that was with him you know sawing wood on the top of that mountain telling the story you got countless people in the community 
and all the police officers, everyone's searching high and low everywhere for that guy. That's right. He's gone. That's right. He's gone That's for right. five days. They, well, they thought that they thought that Mike and the, and the crew might have killed him and and buried him somewhere. Yeah. Because Mike, Mike, Mike um, didn't want Mike Rogers. He didn't want Dana and Travis getting married. He was completely against Dana. Is, is Mike's sister? So that's what people don't understand. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, Travis's ex-wife Dana, her brother Mike, Mike Rogers. He was the boss of that crew. He was the one driving the truck. That's right. Yep. And he's eventually now turned on Travis. And now I heard comment. But look, people talk a lot of shit. There's some guy commenting on my stuff the other day saying, oh, he was on medication because he had head injuries. He was on so much medication. He was drunk. He got drunk. And then um, he hired two prostitutes, waited till his wife left. I took my wife to the station and dropped her off to go to, to catch a train to work. I'm vomiting on the way there. I'm vomiting on the way back. Last thing on my mind is sex and having some woman come in at seven in the morning, mind you. And then yeah. he's saying, yeah, and then he got home and he had these women waiting there, whether he left them the key or like, shut the fuck up. You don't, <laughs> yeah. you want to, you want, you don't, you want to disagree with a story and try and discredit it. At least do it with some fucking class or some backup information, you know, evidence to back your story, your, your discredit in the story. Don't just talk shit about it. And that's why I got a bit upset with Scott Brown. I didn't, I didn't say anything to him, but I've always said in front of him, I believe Travis. I believe Travis's story and I believe Travis. But Mike has turned on Travis now and he's saying, oh, Travis is doing it just for the money. And Travis and I talked about hoaxing his story like this bullshit. It's people that say it. People will go, oh, Mike Rogers told me that him and Travis talked. That's all he's saying. It's all bullshit. But yeah. I, I get defensive with Travis's case. Look, one of the first cases I ever, ever came across was uh, Billy Meyer. In Switzerland, the one armed guy, he was uh, ex-military and he'd been filming. He was married to a Greek girl called Poppy and that. And he was filming it with one arm. He'd take photos and videos and Colonel, um, what's his name, Stevens, um, he went and investigated his case and he's really big into it. Um, that caught my attention. The Admiral Bird, Admiral Bird flight over... Antarctica caught my attention mm, yeah. and Travis Walton was one of the third ones. It was like Betty and Barney Hill. Those four cases were the ones that caught my attention. And now I get people telling me my case is one of the main cases that gets their attention, which is, sorry. Um, yeah. I, um, I don't know. I, it's easy to discredit people's cases um, off, off the hand, you know, just offhand, but, but, Look at the evidence in my case, and if you can discredit that, then great. Um, usually the people, before they found out who actually did the test, they, there were comments made that Bill Chalker did the DNA test in his backyard shed on a, <laughs> on a newspaper. That's how professional he is. And for 10 years, Michael, for 10 years, I kept the identity of uh, Dr. Horace Drew, the biochemist. I kept that secret. I knew who he was. He worked for CSIRO in Australia, the science um, field. I knew who he was. I kept it secret for 10 years to the detriment of my case where people were saying, oh, Bill Chalker did the, the DNA test on a newspaper in his shed, did he? And I'd be, I, all I used to say to them is when the day comes and you find out, and they're like, Peter, tell us. This will benefit your case. Tell us. And I'm like, I'm not going to betray people. I'm not going to tell you who it was. When they're ready to come out, and the guy waited till he retired from working as a scientist for CSIRO 
and uh, it's a government institute, and then went public, and he talks about my case everywhere now. He doesn't care. Um, but it, as soon as these people in the UFO field found out who he was, they they all of them invited him to become an honorary member, a lifetime honorary member of their school, of their group or a committee member. And every one of those groups has asked him to go and speak at their conference, every one or at their meetings. So here they are making, you know, bullshit allegations and comments about my case and that, that the hair wasn't DNA tested properly and that's why they got... And now that they know the guy that did it is the main... He's written five books on DNA and is the go-to guy when people question DNA stuff. Well, that changed their perception of it now, but you know, I, I was never waiting for their approval anyway. That doesn't worry me. I tell my story, and like I said to you, I tell it. Hopefully, it, it resonates with people who have had similar experiences, and then they can either talk about it or contact me. Like, you know, yeah, you, yeah. You, couple, you can either keep quiet, not talk about it at all to anyone, and keep it to yourself, which I think is more harmful, especially if you have ongoing experiences. And or you can just talk about it and share it with people, and you'll find that a lot of people these days are accepting. They're they're more open minded these days than they ever were. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think you know a big reason for that is people like you coming forward and telling your story, and you know people like me who were willing to listen to the story and share it, and you know not just hear the story myself, but you know broadcast it to as many other people as possible, and get it out there because even just with to narrow the focus just with just strictly paranormal hauntings not and i can't say that's not alien activity i don't i don't know which one is which or where that line begins or yeah. ends I, I really i can't tell you because i have no idea um but just I, I can't tell you how many times you know people have been brought to tears if we you know we just show up at someone's house and we're just willing to believe them and we'll just listen to them and just like okay just like Hit us with it, whatever. Like, no matter, I don't care. If yeah, think, the, the no matter how crazy, like, you know, just yeah. just tell us everything. We want every detail, you know. And sometimes it's just a, just a, a a person that's there willing to just listen to the story. Yeah, is absolutely. Therapy in and all of itself, and to the, listen and not yeah. judge, just not to be judged is a lot for someone just to listen to you and go, "I hear you," but I'm not judging. That's a lot. That's big. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And after 10 years, you know, I've, it's, as far as, like, as far as weird paranormal activities, unexplained things, I've, I think I've pretty much seen, I've seen it all, except I haven't seen anyone get injured in front of me. Oh, that's, really? one, that's one thing I have not have seen. You, have you come across, have you come across people with actual scratches and that on them? Uh, yes. But yeah. after the fact, I've never witnessed it firsthand. But I mean, I you know I, I, I've had the stories told told to me by people that I believe one hundred percent. I've had someone share a picture of what looked like a freaking Bigfoot. They shared it with me, and they told yeah. me this whole story. They heard these screaming. They were terrified. You know, so I one hundred percent believe because they're that's a you know it was told to me by someone who I believe, and I I could tell that they were being sincere, and and you know, yeah. and until. You know, like I said, you know, my sisters were chased by a UFO when I was just a baby and my parents witnessed it. My father was my father was actually in the army. He was he was stationed at White Sands, New Mexico in the in the 1950s. Really? Um, uh, yeah. When it, there was supposedly an abduction that happened uh, there on the base. 
Um, he was there at that time. He he wa he walked around Roswell, you know, just a handful of years after the Roswell incident in the early 1950s. He spoke to people, farmers, ranchers that they were there. They saw the army come in and lock the whole place down. They, you know, I grew up hearing these stories and watching in search of Leonard Nimoy and, and having my dad there to tell these stories. Like, yeah, you know, I talked to these people. They were they were really freaked out. Like, I don't know what the hell happened out there, but something happened. And I, you know, and I spoke to them and they I saw them face to face and, you know, and they, they told me their stories and I believe them. And yeah. so I grew I'll up doing that stuff. And I'll yeah. send you an email. I'll send you some photos of the scratches from 2020. And um, tell me what you think. They, they look pretty bad. And you can see one photo will be one scratch and then the next photo, two or three scratches. And the next wow. photo, the holes my inlets, inside of my leg, the inside of my leg is all scratched up. So... Yeah, that's something I'm still dealing with at the moment. Um, my girlfriend now, there's activity at her house. Um, I was lying there the other day. Um, I, w I walked out of the bedroom, actually. I was in the lounge room, lying on the lounge. My back was a bit sore. And I heard right at my feet, like a box, uh, something big hit the ground with a thud. And I got up, you know, I wake up and I'm looking, what is that? And then I heard three footsteps to my uh, left, um, right in front of the TV. I heard two uh, loud footsteps, uh, three loud footsteps, sorry. And um, her door, her garage door keeps opening like it's inside the house, the wooden door, not the outside roller door, but the one leading to the house. It always opens. And um, recently she went, I wasn't there. Um, she's there for someone else. She went to lock the door because it was opening every time she walked out, the door would be open. And so she thought, oh, I'll lock it. And as she went to grab the lock to lock it, the lock started shaking. It was one of those old locks where you've got to twist mm. one um, the knob and then it's got the button that goes up and down to lock it. Um, she said that the, the knob that you turn started shaking by itself and the button was pushing up and down by itself. So she just put her hands up and went, whoa, you know, I surrender sort of thing, walked away. Um, but, yeah, there's been heaps of stuff there. Only the other day I was talking to her on the phone and she was telling me um, she had a handprint on her on her cover on her bed and she took a photo of it. And then um, as she was talking to me, she, there was tapping on the window and then the tapping started happening inside on the inside wall. Um, inside the house so there's something going on there and you know I don't know if we've been brought together she thinks we've been brought together by something or some force and other people have said that other people have said that she um, as soon as I put her as soon as I put a photo of us on Facebook a lot of people jumped onto it and a lot of females were calling her uh, scammer they're going oh she's a fraud she's a scammer i got bad feeling about her someone said they saw her on a tv show and um she's the loveliest person you could ever friggin meet and these people are judging her on on the on facebook and um what people must have thought she was from in russia or something and you know taking me for a ride and uh one day one night i was over at her place having dinner with her and his young son and I had to tell people on Facebook, guys, just relax, please. I'm, she's not a scammer. I'm with her at her home. I'm with her and a kid. Would a scammer introduce you to their kid and bring you home? You know? But, wow. um, yeah, that's, yeah.
that's where I'm at at the moment. And uh, we're dealing with this at her house now. And I, I know I didn't bring it on because we're having a, we're in a relationship now. She was having this stuff before, so I don't feel bad. I don't feel guilty that you know I brought that along with me. Okay, yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. So, do you does the does the activity seem to have increased for both of you since you're together, or is it just kind of the same for both of you? Yeah, she's not in she's not in her head going yeah. Yeah, so it has. It's increased. Hmm. Um, the other when we were talking and there was tapping, it happened three times. Um, she heard it while she was lying in bed. She got up and had a look. She thought someone was in the backyard tapping on a window. And then she heard it again a second time. And then while we were on the phone, she heard it as well. So yeah, it's escalating a little bit. Um, I don't know. My stuff here goes quiet. Like I hear a lot, a lot of noises. And, but you know what? I live with it. I don't argue with it. I don't instigate it. I don't feed it. I just let it go. I, you know, I've just made a deal with it. I've said whatever. Look, one day I'll tell you. I I didn't believe. I didn't believe much in orbs. People seeing orbs, mm. and um, I, look, I I believed in them. I shouldn't say I didn't believe, but most of the photos I've seen, I thought were bullshit because they'd be taken around fires or around, you know, fountains of water or something where you're going to get those sort of images. Right. Um, but I have seen some really good photos. I thought, oh, maybe. But I didn't believe it that much until it happened to me. And what happened was my I went, I went, my son works at JB Hi-Fi um, and I went over and bought a camera to put inside my lounge room because uh, I was having a lot of stuff happening. I wanted to see if I can document some of it. And um, I hardly turned it on. I just I don't like it on anyway. But when I'm not home, I turn it on just for security purposes. But um, the first night I was home, the first, very first night, and I plugged it in, my son was over. He came over. He, goes, he got the uh, app for me on the phone. And he goes, Dad, just run it off your phone. You don't need a monitor. You don't need to just do it off your phone. All right, no worries. He left. Um, hadn't plugged it in yet, and then a couple of hours later, I actually turned my phone on to check to see the it comes up if it comes up on my screen. And as I did that, I was walking into my bedroom to go to bed and I closed the door, but I was looking on my phone screen, and that was the first time I turned that camera on inside the house. And mate, no word of a lie, out of my the side of my kids' um, bed be, uh, bedrooms. Um, I saw five little orbs come out, uh, just about a foot or two above the ground, just come out hovering. Two of them went to where I'm sitting right now. I'm sitting on the dining, on the lounge with the coffee table in front of me. So two of them came and went to the side to where I am now. The other three stayed hovering where in, in the middle of the room sort of. And then I seen two bigger ones come out after them. And the bigger ones were like two to three times. The little ones were orange in color and the bigger ones were white in color. And the two bigger ones, they came out, flew out. One went towards my bedroom. I could see it going straight through the doorway to my bedroom. And the other one went straight to the camera. And as it got closer and closer and closer to the camera, I could see this orb getting bigger and bigger and bigger, obviously. And it looked like it almost, like you open your mouth and you swallow that camera. That's what it looked like. 
This wow. thing just, that's what I could see on my screen. Now, I don't know if it's recorded it because it played it, but then I've unplugged it out of the power since now, but I don't know if it's recorded it somewhere and kept it in the cloud or something. I don't know. But I'm an idiot because I should have just rewound while I was there. I should, but it was the first day I got it. I wasn't even, didn't know how to use it. I should have rewound it, checked to see that it played, copied it, but I wasn't recording at the time. I don't know, but I've, yeah, I've, you know, I've got ongoing stuff going on that I'm dealing with as well, and you know, we'll see how it pans out. Yeah, the the, the orb thing is difficult because because if you just see it in a picture that you like you mentioned, it could be dust, it could be moisture, it could be a bug, it could be a lot yeah, of different yeah. a lot of different things. Yeah. But but I but I personally know that orbs are legitimate because I was uh, I was laying in bed in my apartment uh years ago i was in the midst of a divorce so there was like all kinds of trauma going on there was you know heightened emotional state there was a lot of isn't it funny how they feed off that yeah absolutely i i saw an orb you know during this time i see an orb literally come out of the wall of the side of my you know my bedroom was on you know the edge of the house and so i i imagine this thing came from outside through the wall just came through my bedroom wall into the bedroom and literally was so bright that it illuminated my my whole room. It was like somebody walked in with a lantern and yeah, just yeah. It floated yeah. right across the room, right in front of me, and went. It just continued going from right to left, and it went you know into my bathroom. Master bathroom was off the bedroom, and just kept going and went out the window and was gone. And and I've captured similar looking things in the security system I had set up there, um, but. No, but there, but there's countless photos that I've seen. And most of them, I, I'm sure, are just dust or moisture or whatever. But I've never been able to yeah. catch one with a camera. I've never filmed one, but I've seen one with my eyes, and I know that's I know that they're legitimate. What it was, I, I yeah. had no idea. It was some sort of energy of. Uh, well, man, I had I had five little ones and two big ones, seven of them here, and I wish I wish I had recorded it and got you know had it on because they looked good, like. There was no denying they weren't dust particles. They weren't little mops. Yeah. They were group of five and then three of them, two of them split, three stayed, and then the other two big ones came out just the way they floated and flew. They were intelligent. And um that that changed my mind completely about um orbs and that. But yeah. Anyway, mate, I've kept you. Um we've got to go, we've got to go babysit tonight. So We've got to be there in the next hour or so. So I have to cut it short, unfortunately. Hey, man, it's no problem. I really thank you for your time. Um, no, thank, thank you. you for reaching and when out. You're ready, let me know. I can get, I'll get Bill Chalker and I'll get um, Dr. Horace Drew to take some time, maybe have a chat to you and you can put something together. Um, yeah, that would be great, man. Yeah, yeah, you let me know. I'll, I'll speak to them. I'll speak to Bill. I'll, I'll be talking to Bill today anyway. Um, he starts work at 5.30, so in an hour, he'll be travelling there now. I'll give him a call and have a chat to him. But, yeah, whenever you're ready, let me know, and I'll give you their contacts, and you could do it with them. I think it would be good to get their side of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's amazing. Really appreciate it. All right. And uh, All right, Nice yeah. talking to you. I'll we'll definitely keep in touch, and um, I will send you a couple of photos when I get down to my niece's place. In about an hour, I'll send you an email with some photos. Awesome.
All awesome. right. Sounds Take good. Care. Thank you, Paul, mate. Thank you. Take care, Peter. Bye. Bye.